When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I just want to tell you first how much I love you. I mean that sincerely, and I hope that you feel that. Lately, I've been able to be out among you a little more often, and just being able to shake your hand and give you a hug and rejoice together in our shared love of Scripture, our shared testimony of Jesus Christ and His restored gospel, our shared desire to come unto Him and it's just a little piece of Zion. It's a taste of, of heaven. And being with you has been such a blessing to me to feel of your strength and your testimony and your desire to deepen your relationship with, with the Lord. There's something special about connecting over eternal things. Yeah, it makes those, those connections eternal too. And like we see in the Doctrine and Covenants, that when we finally make it to the celestial kingdom, the same sociality that we've gotten used to here will... It's what we'll feel there, only it will also be coupled with glory. Well, my chances to be among you, I, I'm getting a taste of that glory already. Uh, and, and you're just amazing people. So thank you for letting me be a part of your life as we study scripture together. And thank you for being a part of mine. I wanted to remind you also, uh, speaking of celestial, celestial souls, this wonderful couple that is doing so much good on the Instagram channel. Uh, if you haven't had a chance yet to check that out, uh, if you're overwhelmed by the length of these lessons, especially lately, uh, the Sarbones are doing such an amazing job of, of creating snippets and, and smaller pieces of material or vi visual aids and so forth. So if you go to Unshaken Saints on Instagram, uh, be sure to, to subscribe there so you can see just the bite-sized nuggets of truth uh, that are coming out of these lessons. Uh, now, today's lesson I've been looking forward to for quite some time. It has to do with the second coming. We're still in the Holy Week. Uh, we've seen the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple. Today we will study the Olivet Discourse. Uh, most believe that as the, the multitudes of Jews from around the diaspora have come into Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, there's, I mean, if you thought it was uh, crowded in Bethlehem 33 years ago, imagine Jerusalem during a pilgrimage feast. And so no room in the inns? Yes, for sure. And so many people would come and camp out anywhere they could find some open ground. And the Mount of Olives was a good place to do it. And so what we'll see today is... There on the hillside, uh, Jesus teaching some of the most important things that we, could, that we could possibly receive. It has to do with his second coming and the signs of the times and the, the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. These, these are some big, I mean, this is the cosmic Christ that we're learning from today. But to understand what he's trying to get across during this particular time period, uh, most likely this is Tuesday afternoon evening. Of Holy Week. We don't really know of anything that happens specifically on Wednesday. Uh, and then Thursday we get to the, the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane and, and on toward Calvary. But if this is Tuesday afternoon or evening, if a day has been spent already teaching some important things, uh, but now in a smaller group, uh, a more intimate setting, 
Jesus tries to help people understand what it's going to be like as we prepare for his, his second coming. Uh, these apostles have been with him as he's been the lamb. Well, we will be here, hopefully, I'd love to be here, when he returns as the lion. And to understand the level of preparation that will be required of us, especially as those who hear, or to quote from the Doctrine and Covenants, those that have been warned to go forth and warn their neighbor, are we preparing the world for the second coming? We talked about this recently in Luke chapter 18, when the Lord asks, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? And it's our job to make sure that that's in the affirmative. Uh, will there be faith? Yeah, I also want to just bring up this idea. We've talked about this Doctrine and Covenants several, uh, two, what, two years ago? We talked often about the second coming. Since in many ways the Doctrine and Covenants is the Lord's Oh, Scripture is meant to prepare the world for the second coming. The thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants is, Prepare ye, prepare ye, for the day of the Lord is nigh. And there are so many sections in the Doctrine and Covenants that are meant specifically to prepare us and point us toward that great and dreadful day. Yeah, to understand a little bit more of, of what we see in the second coming, though, I talked then, and I'll repeat it here now briefly, that there are two different types of approaches to the second coming. Uh, that, are, that are played out in Christianity today. One is called premillennialism, and the other is called postmillennialism. And the millennialism is the easy part in terms of, okay, we believe in this millennium, this thousand years of peace. The pre and post has to do with when will Jesus come in relation to the millennium. And premillennialists believe that Jesus will come at the beginning of the millennium to usher it in. And postmillennialists believe that Christ will come at the end of the millennium kind of as the cherry on top, uh, the, to, to receive the gift that we have given him in terms of the millennium. Uh, you can kind of cut pre versus post along religious lines and even kind of political lines uh, if there are conservative and more progressive or liberal factions within a denomination or be between denominations themselves. The more conservative tend to be premillennialists. And premillennialism, in some ways, is kind of pessimistic. It's, it's, we're messing this thing up, and, and it's beyond our ability to fix it. So hasten the day, Lord, and please come to clean up our messes. Come to bind Satan. Come to cleanse the earth and, and, and usher in this millennial reign of peace. That's the premillennialists. The postmillennialists tend to be more liberal progressive. They tend to be more optimistic in terms of Oh, humanity's ability to, to live into the, the, uh, to the divine expectation. Uh, they have more optimism at uh, humanity's ability to, to create a millennium. You know, for, among many post-millennialists, it's this idea of we will achieve peace on earth, social justice, kumbaya. Uh, and when we have established Zion, when the earth is fully prepared and the spirit of Christ has reigned upon this planet for the last thousand years, then Jesus can come. In fact, if you're really on the extreme of the, the liberal progressive to the point that the miraculous and divine are hard for you to wrap your head around or your heart around, that there's a certain belief that, the, that there is no literal second coming. That's not us, by the way. We believe in the literal, the literal second coming of a, of a bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. Let me make that clear from the start. But among mainline Protestantism, for example, there's frequently this belief that we will pull off the millennium, that 
the, that once we have achieved social justice, once, that we, once we have achieved peace on earth, it's as if the spirit of Jesus Christ has returned to the earth. That's the second coming as far as they're concerned. Uh, like I said, we don't believe in, in figurative, figurativizing, is that a word? Uh, we believe in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. But it is fascinating to think, what role do we play in preparing the earth for that coming? If you were to ask a Latter-day Saint, are you a premillennialist or a post-millennialist? It's a great question. When it comes to literal chronology, we're premillennialists. We do believe that Jesus Christ will come at the beginning to usher in the millennial reign. But when it comes to the optimism or, or pessimism, when it comes to the how much do we just have to trust for Jesus to come and fix things versus how much do we have to do to try to fix things ourselves, can you sense a contrary coming on? <laughs> the, the proving of contraries, we're both. In term, I mean, Zion must be built. That's a post-millennialist kind of sentiment. But Zion will be brought from above. That's more of a premillennialist feel. Uh, that Christ will, will bind Satan. Yes, that's, that's premillennialism. But that we will live in such a way that Satan has no power over the hearts of the children of men. That's more of a post-millennial optimism. So I'm, I'm, uh, there are so many places where the restored gospel proves contraries beautifully. And when it comes to our view of the millennium and the second coming, it's one of my favorite examples of proving contraries. And so let's try to strike the proper balance. Uh, I'll say this also as far as balance is concerned. Uh, in the not too distant past, fairly recent memory, uh, there have been more and more YouTube videos and podcasts that have talked about the second coming and have gotten much more specific uh, than I will today, or that Christ ever did uh, in, in the Olivet Discourse, much more specific about the timing of the second coming and the specific fulfillments of the signs of the times. We'll talk more about this when we get to the book of Revelation with all of its layers of symbolism and its, its real laser-like focus on the last days and the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I'll say this now, Many of those second coming videos went viral. Uh, you, want, you want to get people excited about things and, and interested and intrigued, we'll talk about the second coming. And it's always been that way. Uh, William Miller went viral in the 1840s as he focused on the millennium and, and tried to be very specific as far as the timing was concerned. It got a lot of Latter-day Saints uh, interested and wondering, like, is, is he right? Joseph Smith himself asked the Lord about some of these issues regarding the timing of the second coming. We'll see a lot of that today. But I had students at the time that were asking me, how do you feel about these videos that are so clear in terms of within a certain time period and, and this oh, solar eclipse is going this way and another one coming from this direction and X marks the spot in, in uh, Jackson County, Missouri. And the way I answered them, I basically said, as a prover of contraries uh, always, if someone is apathetic and is not taking the second coming seriously and thinks that, oh, it'll never come, or maybe we're, we're so, they've become so post-millennial that, that they're uh, not taking anything literally, then if a video like that, if a lesson like that gives them a certain sense of, oh, the need to prepare, and if it wakes them up, then I'm all for it. If, on the other hand, someone is already prepared or preparing and they're taking seriously the need to be ready 
for that glorious day. And if a video like that makes, moves them from zeal into overzealousness, we're talking Goldilocks zones here. That's why, that's why contraries are so important to prove. If someone's not in the Goldilocks because they're too cold, then perhaps a video like that will help move them into the Goldilocks zone of, I need to prepare for the second coming. But if they're already in the Goldilocks zone and, that, and their zeal is now pushed into overzealousness, then I wish they hadn't seen that video. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, we need to be self-aware and self-reflective and be able to do some self-diagnostics to realize, where am I on this? Do I need to increase my, my level of preparation? Do I need to, my, to deepen my sense of urgency to prepare, to put oil in my vessel along with the other wise virgins? Or is it pushing me to become so overzealous that I am making a monopoly on oil to the point that I, I never want to run out myself, but now it, am, I, do I, am I caring about my neighbors and their chance to prepare too? It, it is a fine line, and we'll try to balance it in this week's lesson. Uh, there is so much good to talk about, and I do pray that it helps us. I hope, to, I hope it calms the, the overzealous, and I hope it, it ignites oh, the underprepared. That's my prayer for today. So let's dive in and combine our premillennialism and postmillennialism and see where the Lord takes us in this all of it discourse. Now, the specifics of the discourse itself, which is typically, which we can focus on Matthew chapter 24 and 25, okay? And we're going to get Joseph Smith's help on this because there's a JST of Matthew 24 in its entirety. That's Joseph Smith Matthew, which is an absolute masterpiece. To study it from the inspired version gives some essential clarifications that we'll need. That's going to start the second half of our lesson, though. Uh, I, I don't think today will be as long as last week or the week before, because there's a little less material here. Uh, but I do hope that you'll endure to the end. Uh, that, that, that's good second coming prep, too. Because once we get to Matthew 24, or Joseph Smith Matthew, uh, the second half of our lesson, then we'll really be digging into the signs and so on. But I mentioned in a few previous lessons that there were places, particularly in the book of Luke, where Jesus was teaching about signs of the times and preparing for the second coming before Holy Week. Earlier on in his ministry, he would bring this up. Again, this is where the synoptic gospels aren't quite as synoptic as, as we assume, that Luke has a different chronology here. Uh, and while we get a sense of the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21, we saw previews of that in Luke chapter 12, and again in Luke chapter 17. And knowing we would get to the second coming central today in this week's lesson, uh, I, I pur purposely did not cover those verses from Luke 12 or Luke 17 that had to do with the second coming. Okay? But I want to make sure that we cover those today under that, same, that big umbrella of the theme of second coming. So if you go back with me to Luke chapter 12, we're going to read, study from verse 35 to the end in verse 59. It's the, about a half of this chapter. Uh, there's a big chunk of JST in here also. A lot of times when the Lord talked about the second coming, uh, it needed to be uh, restored uh, in, in uh, the inspired version. We'll talk more about that when we get to Joseph Smith Matthew. But in Luke chapter 12, this is right on the heels of the parable of the rich fool. Remember that? I mean, talk about great context. This parable of someone who feels, oh, I'm, I'm overprepared. I've got everything covered. In fact, I'm getting so good at things, I need to tear down my barns and build new ones. Because, and here's where we get second coming context, I'm sure I've got all the time in the world to enjoy my early retirement. 
So yes, let's build down and build greater so that I can store all these goods and lay them up for myself. Well, remember why the Lord called this rich man a fool? Because he did not realize how quick the, the end could come. And it was that night that he met his maker. How's that for second coming context? What are we laying up? Are we filling barns for ourselves or are we laying up treasures in heaven? Because it could be tonight. When we think of second coming, we need to think of two directions. Jesus coming to us or us coming to Jesus. The, our own death and the Savior's return have a lot in common in terms of no man knows the day nor the hour. In terms of we better be ready whenever it occurs. In terms of pencils down and the test is over and, and we're going to be judged on how well prepared we were. Okay? So think of that in terms of this, uh, the, the context of what we're going to see in the second half of Luke chapter 12. Uh, Jesus also in this chapter has talked about taking no thought. And that's the other half of the contrary. If the parable of the rich fool lets us know, wow, I got to be ready whenever. The taking no thought also balances things out and helps us see, don't be over anxious about things. Prepare yourself and be ready. And if it doesn't come today, then prepare yourself a little bit more tomorrow. But the Lord will provide and he'll, he'll dress the lilies of the field and he'll provide for the fowls of the air and it's going to be okay, okay? We're trying to balance the way Jacob talked about it in Jacob chapter 1, verse 5, because of faith and great anxiety. If thoughts of the second coming cause you great anxiety, then lean into your faith. And if you have so much faith that you don't get anxious enough to act, then move a little bit more in the direction of anxiety, but anxiety in a good way, okay? Uh, take no thought, as the Savior taught, means, well, Take some thought and, take some, and, and be prepared, but don't get over anxious about things. Okay? It's also in this context where the Lord teaches, and we saw this in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should seek the kingdom of God before any other thing. And if we've sought the kingdom first, then everything else will be added unto us. Remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaches similar thoughts there. And that's pretty good second coming context also. Build first the kingdom of God? Well, yes, because Zion built will invite Zion brought. And Zion from below will be prepared for the coming of Zion from above. And that's, that's a rendezvous uh, that I look forward to. So with all of that as background, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Now, that's one of my favorite verses about the second coming. Notice it has to do with a wedding. And by the time we get to Matthew 25, near the end of this week's lesson, we will see a wedding as, as the context of the parable of the ten virgins. So weddings, brides and bridegrooms, Christ and the church, Jehovah and Israel, right? All of those symbols there. Yeah, weddings are a, a, key, a key element uh, or a key symbol when we talk about the second coming. But notice, the, how are we preparing for this wedding? It looks like we've got some preparing to do. Our loins must be girded and our lights must be burning. Now think about this. And when I taught seminary, especially among youth, uh, you teachers of youth or you parents of younger children, this, this could be some, maybe some lesson ideas for you. 
I'd often ask them, if a knock comes on your door, somebody rings the doorbell in the middle of the night, what are two things you usually have to do before you can open the door? And as they think about it, usually a smile crosses their lips and they're like, oh, I guess I better put some better clothes on. Okay, yeah, that's usually the case. So how's that for let your loins be girded about? <laughs> get dressed, get properly dressed so you can open the door and not be embarrassed. Uh, in this case, loins girded is not just getting dressed, but also being ready to run, being ready to work. Uh, we've talked about this before, but in the ancient uh, New Testament time period, as the, even the men, the workers in the field, would typically wear these kind of long robes. You sisters would vouch for this. It's hard to run or work in a long dress. And so what they would do is gird up their loins. The loins are like the waist area. So if you've got a belt there, well, imagine bending over, grabbing the back hem of your robe, and then pulling it forward between your legs, and then tucking it into your belt. And just like that, you've gone from flowing robes to MC Hammer parachute pants. Uh, and, and you can easily work and run that way. Well, this person's properly dressed, and he's ready to run, ready to work. He, his loins or her loins are girded about. That's the first thing. You got dressed. But then what's the other thing? As you're looking out the peephole of your front door, thinking, who on earth would knock at this ungodly hour? Well, you better turn the porch light on. Uh, you better put some lights on in the house so that people know that you're home. And that's the second half of what the Lord said. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Now, when we get to the parable of the ten virgins, we're going to see a specific kind of light in your oil lamp. But to have the lights on, to be, to let your light so shine on this side of things, so that when the light of the world comes, there's this glorious joined illumination. There's another thing here, though, and it's one of my favorite parts of this, of this verse. It, when it speaks of them, okay, my loins are girded, I'm dressed, I'm ready to rock. My lights are on. I'm ready. In fact, I'm ready and waiting. You are waiting for their Lord. That, that's an important detail because it suggests that I'm not doing some kind of deathbed repentance. I'm not doing last second preparation in hopes that I'm ready. No, I've got plenty of oil. I'm, it, it's my lights are on and they can stay on as long as they need to be because I'm ready and waiting for my Lord. As soon as he comes, I'll be able to open. That's the end of that verse. They can open unto him immediately. Among my students, I ask them how well they would do at passing the immediately test. And what I mean by that, it's fun to do this in class because nobody's home. They're in class with me. And I'll ask them, imagine if your mom or dad were to go into your bedroom right now. You're not home to stop them, okay? What would they see? What would they find? What would be on the floor? Would they see any of the carpet down, down below? Uh, if they went and pressed play on, this doesn't work as well now that everybody just has earbuds and plays from their phone. But back in the old days, if they had a, a, a radio, if they had a, a CD player, what would they hear if they turned it on? What would they see on the walls? What would they find in the closet? What would, what would their impression of you be if they entered your room at this exact moment, because you're not home to change anything. Now, usually they'll kind of get this alarmed look on their eyes, like, uh-oh, uh, not good. I've got some cleaning up to do. Well, exactly. Now, the immediately test for Jesus was when, he, when the Lord comes and knocks, can you open unto him immediately? And what would stop you, think about this, what would stop you from opening the door 
as soon as somebody knocks on it. And it's usually the fact that, well, my house isn't in a presentable place. Uh, it does not, this is not the impression I want to give. And so if somebody knocks and you're like, come in, come in, just a second. And it takes you a long time because you're shoving things in the closet and you're sweeping things under the rug and you're just trying to get ready. When, when grandma's on her way to come visit, uh, how much do your parents make you work and clean to get ready? Or can you open the moment? I mean, that's the fun thing. If you were loins girded, lights burning, waiting for the Lord, as he walks up the, the, front, the front walk, you know he's coming. You've been looking out the people. And as he raises his hand to knock, you just fling the door open. And, uh, and he doesn't even have to knock on the door at all. You're that ready for him. That's the goal as we ponder the second coming. Now, if we are that ready, and if we can pass the immediately test, notice verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Now, did you catch the parallels between the previous passage and this one? If our loins are girded and we're ready to run and work to, to open the door for him, then once he comes in, what will he do? He will gird himself too. And then he will serve you. He'll make you sit down to eat, and he'll do the serving. Now, talk about a role reversal. Luke loves those, by the way, right? We've seen those so many times. The lowly will be lofty now. The, the lofty will be brought down low. But in this case, we mere servants are being elevated in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord, this lofty Lord, will lower himself to the level of a servant. This is true servant leadership, right? Uh, he that is chief among you, let him be servant of all. Well, Jesus is doing exactly that. But he girds himself, tells his servants, thank you so much for being so well prepared for me. Can we switch things up? And instead of you serving me, can I serve you? By the way, this is an incredible foreshadowing of the Last Supper. Because what will Jesus do? He's sent these servants forth to prepare this upper room. They've made everything ready. But once the Lord comes to this great final feast, does that sound like the wedding feast of the Son of God? Uh, what we talked about last time, the, the parables of the, the great supper, this millennial feast, this messianic banquet, that's the last supper too. And so what does Jesus do? When he washes the apostles' feet, and we'll study this very soon, he girds himself with a towel. He serves them since they've spent the last few years trying to serve him. There's something beautiful about what the Lord is saying here in Luke chapter 12 that I, I, I picture, I see when I think Last Supper. And Jesus saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Allow me, please, now to serve you. To think of that at the second coming. Have we served him faithfully and diligently? Are we properly dressed? Do we have our wedding garment on? Are our loins girded about? Are our lights burning? Or have we, have we put our candle under a bushel? Have we been able to outlast the encroaching darkness? 
and, and let our feeble lights shine in preparation for the coming of the light of the world. For him to gird himself. For him to serve us. Sit, no, 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 you sit down to dinner. I'll grab the food. Ah, there's something beautiful here. And it comes to those who are found watching. I can afford to watch if I'm ready. I can afford to just wait, ready to spring to the door. It's kind of almost like a surprise party. Have you ever been to a surprise party? And the big pressure is you've got to get here early enough to hide and have everything ready so that when they come, we can jump out and let them know how excited we are for their arrival. Oh, the second coming is either going to be the most glorious surprise party ever, or sadly, we will be woefully underprepared, and there won't be much, much rejoicing on our part then. In fact, I want you to think about this in terms of the verse from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 2. Through Isaiah, the Lord laments, wherefore, which means why, why when I came was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? When we studied Isaiah last year, I told the story of my two oldest children that were old enough when I would come home from work to know about the right time when daddy comes home. And they would sit, they'd stand on the couch, which was right up against the window, looking out of the living room onto the driveway. And as I came up the driveway, to just see these two little toeheads, to see these cute little blondes just looking out the window at me, uh, heads poking up over the top of the couch. Uh, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. Oh yeah, but more importantly, from my perspective, daddy's so glad to come home to children that are so eagerly anticipating his arrival. Imagine the sorrow of a daddy coming home and no one is there. That's what Isaiah is. That's what he's asking through Isaiah. Why, when I came home, was nobody waiting? I called and nobody picks up the phone. They look at caller ID and like, oh great, it's dad. Sadly, that ship has sailed for me and my kids no longer bounce up and down on the couch to see me come home. If they do, I know it's because they need money. Uh, but on our part, are we dressed, lights burning, ready and waiting? For the Lord to come. One other, one other verse to think about here is what we saw earlier in Luke chapter 17. Remember when we saw faith to forgive and then we read these other stories in context of forgiveness and, and one of those was about servants serving and after a long day in the field when they come in does the master Tell them, oh, sit down and let me serve you and let me give you a back rub and spend a long day out, in the, out, and out laboring in the vineyard. No, a master doesn't do that. The master's still the master and the servants are still the servants, so you better keep on serving. I know it's been a long day for you. Well, big deal. Come in, sit down, or excuse me, let me sit down and you serve me. And we talked about that in terms of a failure to forgive means we want to maintain a master-servant relationship. And we never let them get back up to our level because we want to have an ace up our sleeve. We want to have you know, blackmail so that we can get out, of, get out of jail if we ever do something wrong to them. No, real forgiveness is eliminating all of that. Remember that, that discussion? We'll again think of it in terms of Luke 12, verse 37. Because this is a master 
not telling the servants to keep on serving, but rather role reversing with them. Allow me to sit you down and serve you. Can you tell just how forgiving the Savior is? And that he's not coming for his second... His second coming is not about retribution. Although for the unrepentant, they will see some of that. For the repentant, though, no. It will be the Lord coming to forgive, to serve, to wash our dirty feet, and to feast with us. Think about that, couple of that with the, with the, marriage of the, the parable of the marriage of the king's son. That would be a fascinating thing for the crown prince to come in and begin serving all of his guests. It's so beautiful. Now in verse 38 through 40, notice the timetable. And if he shall come in the second watch, and that would be about oh, 9 p.m. till midnight, or come in the third watch, which is midnight till 3 a.m., uh, whenever it happens to be, okay? And if he finds them so, then blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, oh, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Yeah, you never know. It could be second watch. It could be third. As we learned about the apostles toiling and rowing on the Sea of Galilee, it could be the fourth watch. Might even be the first. Maybe you're assuming it's going to be late, so you got plenty of time tonight to get things ready. We will see later this week in some of the material we'll study that it could come at any time, which means we need to be ready at every time to welcome our Lord. You see, there's something powerful about not being told when it's going to be. He cometh at an hour when ye think not. Yeah, if you remember pop quizzes from high school or college, the power of a pop quiz is it forces permanent preparation on our part. Uh, if you don't know when it's going to be, then you've always got to be ready for it. I remember Uncle Mike using this analogy once and saying, imagine, and I think he might, it might have even done this to his students at one point. And the first day of class, welcoming them in, giving them the syllabus, saying this is what we're going to cover this year, and then making it look like the entire grade for the semester would boil down to one major assignment. Uh, imagine that, okay? Yeah, this is kind of a pass-fail, all or nothing, and it all boils down to this one project. Imagine the professor then explaining the project, what's required of you, and you're thinking, oh, that's going to take a lot of work. But I, I think I can do that. I got all semester for it, right? And then you're looking on the syllabus to get some details, and you realize there's one absolutely important piece of information missing, namely the due date. And you raise your hand like, uh, Professor, okay, thanks for the explanation. I know it's what's expected of me, but uh, yeah, when's it due? And imagine the, the professor just smiling and shrugging their shoulders and going, I, I don't know. Not sure when I'm going to ask for it. Um, it'll probably be a day that we have class uh, and you'll come in and I'll just say, today's the day. Please hand in your project. Now, can, can you imagine what your reaction would be? Well, wait, you, you don't know? Well, maybe I do, but I'm not going to say. What? I've asked my students that. What would you do in a class like that? And after, I, after they say, uh, transfer out of it, drop the class and find something different. No, this is the only class you, that there is. So what do you have to do? 
Actually, put, step back a second. Why do you want to know the due date so desperately? It's like, and once they finally admit it, it's because, well, if I know when it's due, then I know when the last minute is. And I know how long I can procrastinate until it's go time and I have to get this thing done. If we're the type that likes to wait for the last minute, then we need to know when the last minute will come. The Lord doesn't want us to be that type of disciple. He wants us to always be ready. Lights ever burning, loins constantly girded, ready and waiting. Imagine if your assignment was done. How would you feel when you come to class? I would say this to my students too. Uh, how do you feel about the immediately test? Okay, if the door knocked, could you open right away or is there some last minute cleanup to do? That's one test. And your gut will give you the answer. Your gut will let you know, ooh, I am not ready for this. I've got some major cleanup. Please don't knock today. And then this other test is this idea of, are you ready to turn in the, the paper? Are you ready to, to hand in, submit your project? And your gut will tell you. If... If today was a day when the Lord said, hand it in, the professor, today's the due date. Are you relieved? Are you so excited because you're ready to hand this thing in and it's beautiful? Or are you, did you show up to class and you have this pit in your stomach and you're just desperate, please don't let it be today. Please don't let it be today. Because you know you don't have anything to turn in. And once that final bell rings, you are literally saved by the bell and you scurry out of that class relieved that the professor didn't ask for it. You'll, you know, we know down deep if our homework's done. And if it isn't, and if the professor hasn't yet asked for it, well, thank heaven, you have some additional time to work on it. If you are prepared and he still hasn't asked for it, great. Do a little editing. Go to the writing lab. <laughs> Do a, another ver version of it. It'll be better than your first draft. And that's part of preparation as well. There is power in giving us an assignment and not giving us the due date. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He wants to see, are we ready? I've shared this story before. Uh, and I actually got a phone call from my old bishop once I told it. He'd heard this. Uh, unshaken or some friends had alerted him to it. But our amazing bishop, when I was a teenager, we loved him so much that we toilet papered his house all the time. Uh, and it was this house on a kind of a, a, major, a, a main street through the neighborhood. And so it added the element of, of challenge. And he had beautiful trees, which added just for the, the aesthetics of it all. Uh, this was the this was the the early '90s, and so it was a, a kinder, gentler time. I wouldn't to go toilet papering anymore today, okay? But we would toilet paper their house constantly. And it was almost like, okay, the weekend's coming up. We're going to do it on Friday night or Saturday night. When would you like? And his poor son always had to to clean up the toilet paper the next morning. Uh, he was a year younger than than my friend group, uh, a great guy, and he got so frustrated that. Uh, here again. Now, those of us who live through COVID, toilet papering somebody might be an act of service, right? You can stockpile your, your toilet paper. Uh, but back then, no, it was, not, it was not a kind thing to do. And 
this friend, Cody Patterson's his name, wonderful soul, Cody decided one fateful weekend, they're probably gonna toilet paper us again, and I'm sick of cleaning it up, so I'm going to gird my loins and <laughs> keep my light burning. I'm going to watch and wait. And sure enough, he did. Uh, thankfully, that weekend, I must have had something else going on. I didn't join my friends to do the usual toilet papering. But they went. They borrowed one of their mom's van, minivans, loaded it up with, with friends and rolls of toilet paper, and then went to the Pattersons to go wreak some havoc. And they were just starting to throw the rolls, and Cody saw them. He's just kind of sitting there, looking out the window, peering through the drapes, and just thought, oh, I, I got them this time. Well, watching them begin, he noticed another detail. He's noticed that they left the minivan running and they'd left the door to the car open. And so, genius, Cody snuck to the front door, peered out the peephole to make sure that the coast was clear, and when the toilet paperers were on some side trees, he sprinted out the front door, jumped into their minivan, and sped off. <laughs> and my friends are sitting there looking like, no, that's my mom's car, we're dead. Well, Cody rounded into the neighborhood, came back with the doors locked, and then just cracked the window and said to them, you get your mom's minivan back once you clean up my yard. And very sheepishly, tail between the legs, they, they cleaned things up. Oh, they learned their lesson. Uh, it was interesting, though, to just picture, I love that story in context of Luke 12, that if we are ready, if we are waiting, if we are found watching, then no thief will break into our house unawares. No punk kids will come and toilet paper us. We're watching, so we better be watching. Now, right here, there are some amazing Joseph Smith translation corrections and additions. And like, as I mentioned, we'll see a massive one when we get to Matthew 24. Makes you wonder, why would the adversary not want us to understand the second coming? Let that one settle in. Uh, why would there be such need for revelation and clarification when it comes to the second coming? It's so easy to miss the point, and this is something we don't want to miss. We want to be ready and waiting. So how's this? JST of Luke 12, start in verse 41 and 42. And it's going to be similar to what we have already seen, but look at the difference in order and language and so on. He says, For behold, he cometh in the first watch of the night. And that clarifies things. Wait a minute. I thought you said we don't know if it's going to be the first watch or the second watch or the third. Here it says he comes in the first watch. Wow. But then he goes on. He shall also come in the second watch. Wait, also? Again? Yeah. And in fact, not just those first two. Again, he shall come in the third watch. And verily I say unto you, he hath already come. As it is written of him, and again, when he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, blessed are those servants when he cometh, that he shall find so doing. Now that's an odd addition in the JST. But man, does it give you some amazing food for thought. He's going to come in the first. Oh, and he's going to come in the second. Yeah, again in the third. Actually, he's already come, and yet he's going to come again. Like, whoa, how many comings are we talking about? Well, that's the beauty. It's amazing how desperately the Savior wants to come to us. No wonder he's constantly inviting us to come unto him. 
and he'll come early and he'll come late and he's constantly checking and are we ready? No wonder in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, he keeps going back and hiring people at sunup, but also hiring them at nine and at 12 and at three and at five, 11th hour and all. Are you ready yet to come? We will see justice in Jesus' teachings about the second coming. Again, that's why it has to be a pop quiz. That's why he can't just tell you the last minute so that you can procrastinate and then desperately prepare. No, there's, there's justice here. But there is so much mercy. And the Lord coming over and over and over again, checking to see if we're getting ready, giving us a few more signs of the times in hopes that it wakes us up and gets us going. There's something beautiful here. And it's also an important reminder He's already come. He's shown us what preparation looks like. He's revealed real discipleship. And if we can follow his example, if we can keep coming unto him, then we'll always be ready, no matter when he chooses to come unto us. The JST continues in verse 43, For the Lord of those servants shall gird himself... And make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. So just like we saw earlier in, in Luke chapter 12. And now verily I say these things unto you, that ye may know this, that the coming of the Lord is as a thief in the night. And it is like unto a man who is an householder, who if he watcheth not his goods, the thief cometh in an hour which he is not aware, and taketh his goods, and divideth them among his fellows. So we're seeing similar to what we saw in the King James Version. But also then, verse 46 of the JST, they said among themselves. What I love about the JST is it's more of a conversation and a learning opportunity. And the, the disciples here are going, wait a minute. Wait, okay, So he's talking about, are they ready? Uh, he's going to come at, at a moment nobody's aware, like a thief in the night. They said among themselves, ah, if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through and the loss of his goods. And then Jesus said unto them, Ah, yes, verily I say unto you, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. So again, this is not just some kind of lecture on the Savior's part. No, this is a conversation. And he's describing things, and they chime in. Wait a minute, is it like that? Yes, it's like that. Uh, are we engaged students? Are we putting two and two together? Are we starting to see the importance of our own preparation for the coming of the Lord? Now, among those students, there was always one ready to raise his hand, sometimes even before he, he opening his mouth, even before he engaged the mind, and that's good old Peter. Okay? Now, in this case, Peter has a really good question. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 41, Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? Now, a couple ways to look at that. On the one hand, is this a message just meant for us? Or is this a message meant for everyone? Or maybe even the second coming itself. Is this some kind of oh, private event? And you're going to come to us? And so we need to be the ones ready for it? Or are you talking about a general, kind of global, universal coming of Christ? In which case, the entire world needs to be prepared. Who, who's your target audience here? And the Lord answers. 
Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Now, that's, there's some beautiful truth in what the Lord just said there. Okay, We have to be ready. What, what's the due season? I, I don't know. We have to be ready at all times. He's going to come. Will he find us so doing? Will he find us working? If so, he'll make us ruler over all things. Now, again, that's, that's some great principles there. But it doesn't seem to answer Peter's question. Peter's was more of a who. Who are you intending this for? Who really needs to be ready? And the Lord just said, well, just whoever's ready, it's going to be, it's going to be good for them. Okay? Okay. Now, this here again is where the JST helps clarify. And so the Joseph Smith translation of those verses has this for a more clear answer for Peter. The Lord said, I speak unto those whom the Lord shall make rulers over his household. So I'm more focused here on you. The, the, the coming will be to all, but who do I most want prepared? You rulers. And here's why. If I make you rulers over my household, what's your job? Keep reading. To give his children their portion of meat in due season. And then they said, who then is that faithful and wise servant? They're still wondering about that. And the Lord said unto them, it is that servant who watcheth to impart his portion of meat in due season. Now, he keeps talking about this giving the portion of meat. Well, I thought the Lord was the one that was giving it to us. Well, ultimately, yes. But in the meantime, are we giving it to others? Are we feeding the hungry with the bread of life? Are we letting our light shine so that other people will realize where the source of that light is ultimately coming from? Are we oh, pressing oil and filling our vessels so intently that those around us are seeing, wait a minute, I might need a little more oil of my own. And are we prompting them and persuading them to be more prepared themselves? As I said before from section 88, which is an amazing second coming section of the Doctrine and Covenants, it behooveth all of those who have been warned to warn their neighbor. So, of course, the Lord is speaking to these servants first. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Martha, all of you. Will you be prepared? Because if you're doing deathbed repentance and last second preparation yourself, then there's no way you're going to be ready to help other people get ready themselves. If you're writing that, that project on the last night, then you're in no position to help proofread the papers of other students. And they're going to need all the help they can get. That again is one of the reasons the Doctrine and Covenants was given to his people first. To prepare us so that we could then go out and prepare the world. That's our job. Rulers over the Lord's household, yes, we got to be ready so we can wake up the world. Now, verse 45, but and if that servant say in his heart, and the JST already clarifies what kind of servant it is. It says, but the evil servant is he who is not found watching. And if that servant is not found watching, he will say in his heart, 
So we get a better introduction to the, the language of the unprepared. Okay? In the King James, it's just the Lord condemns those who say these, this next phrase. But in the JST, it clarifies it's the evil servants that are already saying it. Okay? And this is what they say. My Lord delayeth his coming. I got all the time in the world. Okay? The, the, the due date's certainly not tomorrow. So what can I do in the meantime, since I'm not going to work on my paper? Unfortunately, because it's an evil servant, not only is he procrastinating the day of his repentance, but he's heaping up more and more things to repent of. Keep reading. My Lord delayeth his coming, and this servant shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken. Talk about, talk about taking advantage of, of the extra time this evil servant thinks that he has. He beats his fellow servants instead of helping them prepare. He eats and drinks and is drunken himself instead of making sure the table is set for the marriage feast of the, of the Lamb. Oh, careful if that's the result. The Lord passes judgment here. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder. Now, if that's literal, that's brutal. Most believe that this is more symbolic in terms of cut him in sunder, meaning cut him off from the other people. This is the man who came into the wedding feast without the proper wedding garment on, and is cast out into outer darkness, cut off from the people weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Here in this passage, he will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And it's interesting to be cut off and, and put together with the unbelievers. Because it's the unbelievers that weren't preparing at all. They never thought the Lord was going to come. This one, well, down deep, I guess, assumed that he would. He wasn't an unbeliever originally. He just felt like he had all the time in the world and wondered why on earth is the Lord postponing, delaying his coming. I got time to do it, my own thing. And his own thing was not the Lord's thing. This is some serious punishment. And to be lumped in with the unbelievers, well, why not? You acted as if, as if you were one. You acted as if the Lord would never come so go join those who never prepared. When I was, I mentioned this before about the mile and a half of chain link fence I had to put up, okay, uh, on this uh, chain link fence crew in high school. And I remember this other day, we were doing a chain link fence at a lake, okay, not the reservoir that Lollapalooza was coming to, but a smaller thing. We just had to do a smaller job. And there were three of us that week that were working on this particular job. And it was this beautiful little reservoir north of L.A. And we worked the first day and we were making good progress. And two other guys that were on the, on the team, uh, they, they thought, you know what? I've got a buddy who has a boat. And we're right here. Man, tomorrow, let's take an extended lunch break and go water skiing. Uh, Halverson, you in? I'm like, uh, as much as I love water skiing. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, I think I'm good. Thanks though. Because to me, it's like water skiing on the clock. No, we get, we get paid by the hour and we get a little lunch break, but we're supposed to be working. I, my boss was my bishop. <laughs> 
not only had, did he sign my paycheck, but he signed my, he, he would have to sign my temple recommend. And so, like, yeah, I don't want to mess with the bishop. And oh, nobody's going to know. These other guys were not members of the church. And, and they were older and had their own issues and so on. But I remember the next day, I'm in the big truck, eating my lunch, and looking down the hill at the lake and seeing my two co-workers having a blast slaloming through the wake. And I'm like, well, they do them and I do me and I'm trying to be, do what's right. I'm going to eat my lunch and get back to work. As I'm sitting there, a car pulls up right next to the big truck. And I look down and I'm shocked. This had never happened during my time on the job. The boss happened to show up that day. Was it the first watch, the second watch, the third watch? I don't know, but he was watching. And I'm just like, huh, I'm, whew. He gets out, comes, you know, recognizes his big truck and uh, come, hey, Jared, good to see you. Uh, enjoying your lunch break. Okay, wonderful. Uh, where, where are the other two guys? And I'm like, uh, uh, what, what do I say? Well, I had to say the truth. I'm like, they're, they're just kind of look down. He's like, what, down by the lake? I'm like, mm, close. <laughs> on the lake. Like, on the lake. And then as he sees the boat and these water skiers, he's like, that's them? I'm like, yeah. I mean, and I tried to back them up as best I could. I'm like, we've been working really hard and trying to get the job done, and we'll still finish it on time. They just, we're at the lake. They felt like they wanted a water ski. And I... I mean, I'm just a teenager. <laughs> These are adults. And I left, I left it with the bishop to handle. He was the boss. But I was so relieved that when he came in that watch, he found me watching. He found me working. He found me doing what I was supposed to do. I am glad I wasn't there for the tongue lashing that he, that he gave those other servants that were eating and drinking and making merry when they should have been working instead. Now, before we go into the next verse, let me pause here and do a quick field trip to the book of 2 Peter. Now, remember that it was Peter that originally asked that question. A good question. Who's this for? Who really needs to prepare? Uh, well, who's your target audience in all of this? Peter was laser-focused. Uh, if I'm part of the, the, the good servants the ones that are supposed to be well-girded and, and serving others and getting everyone else ready, man, I better be ready myself. And so he is paying very close attention to what the Savior is teaching in this Olivet Discourse. And what's beautiful is when it gets time for him leading the church, chief apostle, rock, to write these epistles, in 2 Peter, he draws upon the memory of this lesson. And when the Lord says, oh, be careful, those servants that say, my Lord delayeth his coming. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. And this whole chapter is beautiful in terms of second coming context. Peter says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. Does that sound like people who are eating and drinking and getting drunken? Okay, they're walking after their own lust. But what are they scoffing about? Here's the answer. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Does that sound a little like, my Lord delayeth his coming? 
Sound like they're, they've been lulled into this false sense that it's never going to come around. And I keep coming to class day after day after day. And the professor never asks for the paper. Why did I worry so much about writing it? He's never going to ask for it. Is this overestimating mercy and underestimating justice? Is it, what, what's going on in the mind of this servant? Well, whatever it is, it's he's not going to come. So I can do anything I want. I can water ski during work hours. Because the boss never shows up at the work site. Well, not to this point at least. Now, keep reading. And later on in, in this chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, notice what he says in verse 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, or toward us is how we would say it. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the way of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So again, Peter is drawing upon this imagery that he learned at the Mount of Olives. What? What am I supposed to know? How, how well prepared must I be? I will be among those good servants trying to prepare my fellow servants. But there will be those that say the Lord delays his coming. There will be those that think it's day in and day out. Nothing's changed. And nothing ever will. So I can just live as if there is no tomorrow. But God's not a slacker. I love the way that Peter says it. That is not slackness as men count slackness. Why is the Lord delaying his coming? Because sometimes it does seem like it, that's the case. These are the latter days, and we're the latter day saints, but we seem to get latterer and latterer later and later. And when will he come? Well, did you catch one of the reasons that he's postponing or delaying? He's long suffering. Not, he's not a slacker, he's a long sufferer. And what is he waiting for? Us to repent. This is the professor that keeps postponing the due date because he knows human nature and understands that people might not yet be ready to turn anything in. So I'll keep giving reminders and keep warning them about thieves coming in the night and keep hoping and praying that they'll actually prepare. He's not slacking off. He's being merciful for our sake. I hope we take advantage of the time we have to fully prepare. Now back to Luke 12. Go to verse 47 and 48. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself. Now the JST clarifies what the preparation is for. Who prepared not himself for his Lord's coming. Yes, we're focused. Second coming context here. Neither did according to his will. That kind of servant shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, JST, his Lord's will, and did commit things worthy of stripes, well, shall be beaten with few stripes. So there's still some punishment, but not as much as the person deserved. Still be beaten, but beaten with few stripes. And here's why. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Again, you servants, people like you, Peter, people like us, Latter-day Saints, custodians of this final dispensation, meant to prepare the world for the coming of her king. Are we preparing ourselves? 
because that's what God is requiring of us. Others who don't know better, if they come unprepared for the, the wedding feast, well, the king will provide them wedding garments if they're just wise enough and humble enough to put them on. The rest of us that were supposed to be setting up dinner, we better already be wearing ours. It's language like this that reminds me of something that President Hinckley said once. It's really haunting. We know this phrase from the cross. When Jesus, during the crucifixion, looks down at the Roman soldiers and says to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the second group, those that don't know the Lord's will and thus are not fulfilling it. But what about those of us who do know better? The first group? Well, this is where President Hinckley flipped around that, the, the phrases, and it's haunting. He said, for many of us, it won't be, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. Instead, it will be, Father, forgive us, for we do not what we know. We know we must repent. We know we should do better. We know we must be prepared. But we don't do the things we know. That's a caution we need to be well aware of. Now, what the Lord is trying to do here is to get us prepared. Help us see the timing. Uh, give us some winks and wink, 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 nudge, nudge that the due date's getting closer. So make sure you're rewriting and rewriting. Uh, the signs of the times will make that most clear. But notice what he says here in verse 49 and 50. And Luke 12, 49 and 50 goes along so perfectly with what we saw last week from John chapter 12. Remember John 12 when Jesus is wrestling with his divinity and humanity and that divide? And Father, I'm, I'm troubled. What, about, what am I supposed to say? Save me from this hour? Yes, that's exactly what I want to say. But I can't say that. I have to say thy will be done. And so that's what I'm going to say here. For this hour came I unto, this, unto the world. And so I'm moving forward with it, come what may. That's the, the humanity peeking through the divinity in John 12. Well, we see some in Luke 12 too. And I love this passage. Luke 12, 49 and 50. Jesus says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And it will be that cleansing fire, that purifying fire. But it will also be the consuming fire. Just depends on which side of it we're on. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Will the fire purify us? Or will it destroy us? Well, Jesus says, I'm come to send fire on the earth. And then picture his humanity peeking through this phrase. And what will I, if it be already kindled? What am I supposed to do? If there's no going back now. It's already kindled. The fire is beginning to burn. The blaze is beginning to spread. The plan is in play. And there's no going back now. This is the same Jesus who set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. This is the one that was bound and determined. There's no going back. This is the one that says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, if thou art an offense unto me, if you're trying to keep me from my mission. No, the fire is burning. And there's no way to extinguish the flames until the vineyard has been fully purified by fire. He then says this in verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. 
And again, here's the humanity peeking through. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? I mentioned that verse when we saw James and John, with or without their mother, <laughs> depending on who you ask, asking the Lord for a place on his right hand and on his left. Can we have pull position in the kingdom of God? Uh, can we be your right hand men? And remember what the Lord says? Are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? Oh, it's bitter. And can you be baptized in my baptism? This was not the water of John. This is the, the baptism of blood of Jesus. This is the scorching fire. Baptized by water and by the Spirit. That's baptism of water and of fire. And in this kind of Christian conflagration, to see the purification that has to go through, to see what, how naive James and John were, as they just kind of cavalierly say, of course, yeah, I can drink your cup and we can be baptized just like you were. Oh, no, no, it's not how I was. It's how I will be. And that's the immersion in agony. That's the baptism in blood. Can you handle that? And again, naively, from, from the, perspective of, the perspective of Eden, we have no clue how hard the fall can really be. Jesus, is, Jesus gets it. It's starting to press upon him the closer he gets to Gethsemane. That's why John 12 is such a powerful place to see it, because it's right before the Last Supper. Here, Luke 12, it's considerably earlier, but even at that early stage, Jesus sees in the distance a looming cross, a darkened garden, and knows where he's headed. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I am straightened till it be accomplished. To be straightened, I mentioned this in our previous study of this verse, it's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. It's not, I'm crooked and I'm trying to get out of the way and I'm zigzagging to try to avoid this rendezvous with redemption and the Lord's going to straighten me out. No, that's not it. Straighten, this is S-T-R-A-I-T. Like the strait of, the Bering Strait or the Strait of Gibraltar. A strait on the map is a tiny little sliver of ocean that's being crushed between two protruding land masses. And that's how Jesus feels. I'm, on the one hand, my humanity and divinity are being torn apart, this schism of soul that we see in Jesus. And the human side wanting to pass up the bitter cup and the divine side saying, I have to drink it. The human side wanting to run from the fire and the divine side saying, it's already kindled, and there's no going back. This Savior of ours is not just being pulled apart. He's being crushed between these dual demands of humanity and divinity. The Greek word there, being straightened, can also mean distressed. Other translations often will use that term instead. 
but it literally means to press together, to hold together so tightly nothing can fall apart. And I wonder if that's part of what Jesus is feeling too. My divinity and humanity want to run in opposite directions, but I have to hold them together with all my might. I am being straightened here. I've, I've got to keep them, I've got to prove this contrary. And this is one of the deepest and most personal contraries of Christ. This is the infinite and intimate. This is God and man. This is word made flesh. This is humanity and divinity. And Jesus will hold them together. If it was all divinity, then just go on with your perfect, painless life. But no, I've got to hold on to humanity so that I can suffer for sin. So I can die to overcome death. Flip it around if I was all humanity then yeah, I'd run and not drink the bitter cup. But holding on to my divinity is what allows me to press forward when the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a powerful passage. Keep it in mind as we move to Gethsemane soon because he'll still be wrestling with, with this. Now, in verse 51... Jesus asks his apostles, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? Now, we would normally say, well, of course, you're the Prince of Peace, right? The lion and the lamb lying down together. It's all in you. Uh, did, so, yeah, I did suppose that you had come to give peace on earth. But the way you just asked the question and the way you're looking at us makes me wonder, maybe you didn't? How? What, what, what did you come on earth to do then? And the Lord answers his own question. I tell you, nay, but rather division. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring war. And this is an interesting irony. Because yes, ultimately he did come to bring peace. But the peace will come post-second coming. That's the millennial reign of peace. In the meantime, what are we up against? Division disputation, contention, all the things that President Nelson just warned us about. Those are the, da the days that we live in. And the way the Lord explains it, for from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. Interesting, he picked a, an odd number there. So you couldn't just have a perfect split and compromise or just go their separate ways. No, this is two on three and three on two. It's even more personal than that. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father. Unless you think this is just a male thing, because men happen to be, seem to be more violent and more angry. Nope. It's female too. The mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. And then let's add the marriage component in here, and we'll still divide the, the extended family. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This doesn't sound like... Peace on earth. This is division deep, even into, into a family. Harvest time is a time of division. It's sheep and goats, as we'll see by the end of Matthew 25 this week. It's wheat and tares, as we saw in the parables of the kingdom. It's foolish and wise, as we'll see in the parable of the ten virgins. It is a split, and the split comes with 
our level of preparation? Do we sense that he's coming and coming soon? Or do we complain that the Lord is delaying his coming? Do we watch and wait? Or do we waste the days of our probation? Are we ready to serve the Lord and then end up having him serve us? Or are we eating and drinking and becoming drunken? Are we warning our fellow servants or are we treating them harshly? So many of the things that Jesus has, already, has been teaching us throughout Luke chapter 12 so far. That's the division. That's the cutting asunder. Again, section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, where we saw that thesis statement, prepare ye, prepare ye, the day of the Lord has come. He also talks about his sword being bathed in heaven. And what do swords do? They come down and they cut asunder. They divide. And if the sword is the word and spirit of God in the armor of God, then isn't that exactly what the Word of God does? Prophets raise a warning voice. The Word of the, of the Lord comes and cuts people down the middle of will I obey or will I disobey, disregard, delay? How will I react to the Word of God? And to separate three of us will and two of us won't or Mother against daughter disagreeing on deep things. Again, sign of the times. We're living in an age where I hardly ever meet people that don't have at least someone, someone close to them, that disagrees with them deeply on the most important things. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And people that have lost their faith or left the church and... Three on one side and two on the other. And father against son and mother against daughter and in-law against in-law. And how are we going to navigate this? These are the times that we live in. And these are the times Jesus is trying to prepare us for. The fire is already lit. It's already kindled. It's beginning to blaze abroad. And there's no going back. It's just a matter of being prepared for it. Which side of the line will we be on? In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, there's a fascinating passage. It has to do with the second coming. Uh, we'll see that hinted at when, we, when he mentions the parable of the ten virgins. But look at section 63, verse 54. Until that hour, and that hour is the hour of separation. That hour is the day and hour of the Lord's coming. Harvest time. Until that hour, though, there will be foolish virgins among the wise. I told you this was a parable of ten virgins. And they're all mixed together. Sometimes it's hard even to tell which side somebody's on. But that only occurs until that hour. Now, keep reading the verse. At that hour, harvest time, cometh an entire separation of the righteous and the wicked. And in that day will I send mine angels to pluck out the wicked and cast them into unquenchable fire. Who you wouldn't want to be mistaken for the wicked then. There needs to be an, a complete, entire separation. That's strong language, entire separation. How does that compare with the parable of the wheat and tares when the servants wanted an entire separation, but the Lord was like, whoa, 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 not yet, not yet. It's not going to be an entire separation until harvest time, until judgment day, because right now you can't tell the difference between wheat and tares. 
and pulling out tares, you'll end up pulling out wheat, or at least wheat in the making. Give them time. Delay a little. Not because of my slackness, but because of my long-suffering. Please take advantage of the time we've been given to repent. Because the day will come when tares are tares, and there's no more chance to change. When goats haven't converted into sheep, and foolish virgins haven't gone to get more, to get more oil, an entire separation will come. We're already seeing that. We need to heal wounded relationships. We need to help prodigals come home. We need to have both older and younger brother become one under the direction of a loving father. That's what we're trying to accomplish. I don't want three against two. I want five against none. I don't want father against son. I want fathers and sons and mothers and daughters all to come into Christ. That's what he wants. And that's why he came to cleanse us. Fire kindled and all. If you go back to Luke chapter 12, let's finish this chapter. In verse 54, he said also to the people, and this is a fascinating insight the Lord gives them. When ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, oh, there cometh a shower. And so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, ah, there will be heat. And it cometh to pass. I mean, this is first century meteorology for you, okay? They know their stuff, and they're right about it. But then the Lord says, Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Don't you get it? Again, think of meteorology. If you're living in the Middle East, specifically in Israel, and how does he say the, the cloud rises out of the west? Ah, think about the directions here. What's west of Jerusalem? Well, the Mediterranean Sea. Ah, so if a cloud comes from the west, it's probably soaked up all this evaporation from the sea. This is probably a, a rain cloud, heavy laden, ready to dump on us. And sure enough, so it does. There cometh a shower when the clouds come from the west. And then how about if the south wind blows? What's south of Israel? Ooh, the Sinai Peninsula? The Arabian Desert? Hmm, if the wind blows from the south, yeah, it's going to be a hot day. Because the wind's blowing in off the desert sand. You know this. It's the red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Even I know that, and I'm not a sailor. Can we just tell certain things? And oh, what a hypocrite if we can tell weather patterns, but can't decide whether or not. We're ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Can you not read the signs of the times? We're going to spend a lot of time this week on those signs, second half of our lesson. But I love this lead-in that the Lord gives us at the end of Luke 12. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, comic writers when I was a kid was Gary Larson, The Far Side, their classic. And I remember one where it showed a couple of old-timers on a front porch and the caption, remember the far side, it was usually just one, one frame comic. Uh, but somebody spoke volumes in one frame. And it showed a bunch of old timers sitting on the front porch, kind of in rocking chairs. And the caption said, front porch forecasters. And it just showed people with like different body parts, like expanding. 
Uh, and, and one of the guys, his head was like five times the size. And it was like, oh, yeah, storm must be coming. There goes my head. And, it was, and the, what Gary Larson was making fun of is it, it is common, especially among the elderly, to feel it's like there's some drop in barometric pressure, which means a storm's coming, but it also means like their, their gout acts up or their leg starts to hurt or their knee aches. Perhaps we're old enough, some of us are old enough to have, have experienced that. And Gary Larson was just making fun of like, what if it was a body part that would never react in that way? And all of a sudden your head expands <laughs> dramatically. Oh, interesting comic. I actually chuckle because my wife, uh, when we were newly married, so not old enough to become a front porch forecaster yet, but my wife had had major knee surgery in, in college. And so there were times her knee would just start acting up and aching. And it was always funny when she'd do it. She'd just like, oh man, my knee is just really sore today. And I'd, I would just make fun of her and go in my best old person accent, go, oh, storms are coming, huh, oh, honey? And she'd just glare at me like, shut up. But there's this sense of, can you tell when a storm's on its way? Storms are coming. And can we sense the signs of the times? Do we know that time is of the essence and it's time for us to prepare? Now, like I said, we'll get to those signs of the times in Matthew 24. Hold out for that. But last few verses in Luke 12, verse 57 Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? It's like, are you, which side of the line are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the Lord's side or the adversary's side? You've got to judge. You've got to know if you're prepared to hand in your, your, your book report. He says, When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him. Lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison, I tell thee, Thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. Now, we saw similar language in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says almost the exact same thing. There he refers to the uttermost farthing. Here he talks about the last mite. And we're going to see the mite again in just a moment. But it's interesting that in the context here, back then it was just, you know, raise the bar and live a better life. And if you're trying to give something to God, first great commandment, make sure you haven't done anything negative to your neighbor, second great commandment. And so just a life of discipleship. When Jesus teaches that principle in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he's getting at. But to teach it here in the context of the second coming, ooh, that adds uh, another layer to it. Why must I be diligent in my love of God and love of neighbor? Because the end is nigh. A time when the piper comes to be paid. And I, it's too late now for me to make amends with my neighbor. It's too late to try to become at one with God again. And at one with fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and in-laws and others. It's too late to be reconciled. So talk about a prison where you cannot pay the last mite. No, we need to do it now while we're still free. That's the message of Luke 12. Now fast forward and go to Luke 17. We've just skipped over a bunch of parables that we've already studied. Amazing things. By the time you get to chapter 17, he's just taught about faith to forgive. He's just healed the ten lepers. And then in verse 20, he's going to finish the rest of this chapter in second coming kind of urgency. 
So Luke 17, verse 20. When he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And the JST says, The kingdom of God is already come unto you. Now, what these Pharisees are asking is the when question. And that's usually the question people ask when it comes to the second coming. Well, when's it going to be? When's the due date? I want to know how long I can procrastinate before it's the last minute. Nope, that's not the right question. Because it could be the first watch, the second watch, the third watch. Oh, he comes in all the watches. He's already come. That's what he gets at here. The kingdom of God is already come. In the King James where it's, it's within you. Other translations say it's among you, because the you is plural. So it's within you all, or does that mean among us all? I mean, here's Jesus and his apostles. This is what the kingdom looks like. And so it's already here. If you thought it was going to come at some later moment, and thus you didn't have to prepare for it now, then you have the wrong perception of what the second coming will be. Now, that's one side of, of another contrary. The idea of it's not coming with observation. You just need to recognize it wherever it might be and take advantage of every moment. But then there's this flip side. Go to verse 22. He said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You'll, you'll really want to be here for it. And ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, see here, or see there. Oh, now careful, brethren and sisters. Go not after them, Jesus says, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Now, this is an odd one, and we'll see some similar language in Matthew 24 in a moment. But what the Lord is getting at is the idea of the lightning when the lightning flashes, the whole sky lights up. It's not just confined to that one spot. In the Matthew version, it's going to be the sunrise. And the sun comes up, the whole land is covered, bathed in light. See, what he's getting at here is, it's not going to be some oh, little mini gathering that nobody else is aware of. The world will know when it's second coming. It will be something so obvious. The lightning will flash. The sun will rise. The world will know. So don't fall for it when somebody says, Oh, hey, come here. I can get you in. Behind closed doors. Over here is where Jesus is found. No, it's not a low here or a low there. It's a low everywhere. But do you sense that there's a contrary here to be proven? In the first passage, is it's not something you're, you're going to see. In the second passage, it's something that everybody's going to see. Huh, how can both of those be true? Again, think about it in terms of he's, he's already here. The kingdom has been established upon the earth. We can be a part of it. We can be prepared. And the second coming, for all intents and purposes can have happened to us because Jesus already came in my first watch or in my second. He keeps coming back and I treasure every time I get to spend with him. That's the not with observation side of things. On the other hand, 
Don't think, don't, don't oh, explain this away as if it was just some kind of personal experience that I had with Jesus and, and that's good enough. No, there is the figurative coming of Christ, but there is the literal coming of Christ as well. And it's not just a matter of, oh yeah, we pulled off social justice and there's peace on earth. And so, hey, how's that for a millennium? No, Christ will come and rule personally upon the earth. How's that 10th article of faith? I've joked about this before, that when I was in the middle of divinity school, surrounded mostly by liberal Protestants that were figuralizing everything and just saying, oh, the resurrection, that's a scientific impossibility. So Jesus being raised from the dead means the apostles kept his, his message alive. Alive, quote unquote. Okay, so yes, he rose because his church kept on going. Okay, good enough. And then figuralizing the second coming, just saying, oh no, just the spirit of Christ is upon the earth because we finally treat each other well. And what I laugh about that is right in the midst of all that at Divinity School, my dad was a sealer in the Los Angeles temple. And he told me about a member of the 70 who was come to, I think he'd come to L.A. to seal his granddaughter in the temple. And so my dad was his host and just kind of showing him where things were in the L.A. temple. And this man was an emeritus member of the 70, kind of a retired general authority is what that, what that entails. And my dad asked him, so what do emeritus 70s do? And he just smiled and he said, anything that the prophets and apostles ask of us. We're no longer general authorities, but we're not retired technically. We'll do whatever is asked of us. And many of them serve as temple presidents and go on additional missions. Uh, just was something you'd expect of a general authority that just can't quit, right? Uh, get on them. Well, my dad ventured to ask, so what about you? Have they asked you to do anything? And he smiled and said, yes, I'm, I'm supposed to check on Adam on Diamond every so often. And then come back and report to the first presidency. How things, how things are going there. And my dad was intrigued. And when he told me, I was intrigued. Because as we know from section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants and later in the Doctrine and Covenants, Adam on Diamond, there's the site of, well, among other things, the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. One of the more preliminary second comings, uh, since there will be several. And this great and last sacrament meeting uh, we'll, we'll, we'll study more of that later, and we've already studied much of it in the Doctrine and Covenants. But what, there are senior missionaries called to go serve in Adam on, 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 Adam on Diamond. It's a mouthful. To mow the lawn, so to speak. Uh, to do, and it's Because it's just open fields. And when my dad told me that, in my personal context of a very liberal divinity school, I just laughed and said, wow, <laughs> my... Mainline Protestant friends are figuralizing the entire second coming. And here we are setting up chairs at Adam and Diamond. Here we are mowing the lawn and getting things ready. And whenever the Lord comes, we'll be ready for you. Servants ready and watching and waiting for him. Oh, it's powerful. And, and again, you get that sense. It's not with observation, but boy, the world will observe it. And so we're trying to balance these both. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, Joseph Smith was trying to balance those in his day as well, because William Miller, who's, who went viral for his second coming videos on 19th century YouTube, 
uh, it wasn't its own denomination, but William Miller, who had been a skeptic and then fell in love with the Bible and almost too in love with the Bible, where he started digging in and trying to make sense of all the numbers and what does that mean? And a thousand years is one day and this many days and a time and a time and a half a time and then carry the one and <gasps> 1844, that's when Jesus is going to come. And he put the, I know the day and the hour, so here's when it's going to happen. And it wasn't its own denomination ever, but all kinds of other denominations had like Millerite groups within them. And all the Baptists and all the Methodists and all the Presbyterians and some of the Latter-day Saints that were really overzealous about the Second Coming caught wind of William Miller's calculations. And some of them, I mean, sold all they had. Like, what do I need property for? Christ is coming like next month. Uh, that's overzealous. Uh, and thinking that it's going to come as the lightning and everyone's going to know and this is the day and that day didn't come. It caused a lot of people to lose their faith. Oh, the Lord delayeth his coming. It's never going to happen. It caused others, it caused Miller himself to redo his math and come up with a second chance and that didn't pan out either. But it, it's a fine line not to be overzealous because we can easily be led astray by those that say, oh, low here and low there and come follow me. I have the inside info. Oh, beware of that too. As Elder Ballard said once in a BYU address, this was hilarious. He was talking about the second coming to BYU students. And he said to them, you know, no man knows the day nor the hour, but I wanted to double check. I knew I didn't know, but I went and asked my brethren in the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, if any of them knew did I miss a meeting somewhere? <laughs> Did you guys know? Did you get a memo? And he laughed and said to the BYU students, none of them know either. And humbly, I just say to you, if we don't know, then nobody knows. <laughs> okay. Good to keep in mind. Now, verse 25 to 27, the Lord goes on and then says this. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Again, the fire is kindled. It's, it's already spreading. I have things to do first. And so all that you're waiting on is the second coming. I have to complete my first coming first. I will suffer many things. There is no crown of glory until after the crown of thorns. And you'll need to keep that in mind for yourselves as well. He then says, And as it was in the days of Noah so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And this is his description of Noah's day. It's really interesting. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, what is he describing there? He's describing business as usual. In just your kind of average, everyday kind of experience, you eat and you drink. You marry, you give in marriage. It's just life goes on. You get a sense again of what Peter said. Oh, the Lord delayeth his coming because everything is happening just like it's always happened. Ever since our fathers slept is how Peter put it. It's all the same. And you have the cycles of the seasons and the ups and downs of the economy and normal things of life. And so, yeah, what's for dinner tomorrow? And when, when's the next engagement and marriage. You have no idea, do you, that those clouds on the horizon 
the ones coming from the west, full of moisture, well, they're going to dump for the next 40 days and 40 nights. And it's going to cleanse the earth. It's Jesus' day, it's the fire that's kindled. Noah, it's the, it's the water that's on its way. And people will be going through the motions, doing the things they always do, because they assume that life will go on unchanged. Again, that's the rich fool. Of course I'll be here for retirement. More time to spend money on myself. Oh, thou fool, this night thy life will be required of thee. Oh, thou fools, this night the rain will fall. And will you be on the ark or not? Talk about cutting people off by their own choices, choosing not to enter the ark. Because there's no rain on the horizon. Oh, little you know. Now, Noah was his first example. He then gives a second. By mouth of two or three witnesses, right? Verse 28, likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. All the things you'd normally do when it's business as usual. When you have a false sense of security and no punishment will ever come, the piper never shows up to be paid, of course I can eat and drink and buy and sell. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now we've really gone from the flood to the fire. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We can't be rich fools. We can't be those who choose to stay outside the ark or decide to stay back in Sodom. Because no, it's time to go. I love what Joseph Smith once said. Noah came before the flood, but I have come before the fire. It's already kindled, Jesus told us. Are we ready? Do we sense the first drops of rain? And I'm, am I already in the ark? Do I see the first flash of fire? Have I already escaped Sodom? Am I headed to higher territory? The ark will allow us to rise above the floodwaters. The mountain that Lot went to allowed him to look down upon the city that was destroyed. He'd risen above it. No wonder the Lord says this in the next verse, 31 and 32. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. He that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. And then the second shortest verse in all of Scripture. Remember, the shortest was two words. Jesus wept. The second shortest is three words. Remember Lot's wife. Oh, there's haunting counsel for you. If the second coming will be like those days, the destruction of the wicked, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the cleansing of the earth, Noah's flood, Will we be ready for it? Or will we be looking back, thinking of going back, wondering if there were some things we were supposed to do before we left? No, there's not even time, if you're on the rooftop, to go down through the house and, and gather some final belongings. No, you, you book it. You bolt. You can't look back. 
we have to be fully prepared, ready, waiting, watching, prepared for the coming of our Lord. Verse 33, whosoever shall seek to save his life, and is that what tempted them to go back into the house? There's just a few other things that will help me. No, you, you have to have already helped yourself sufficiently. So no going back, no looking back, no saving your own life, because whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Flip it around. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. It's one of those central Christian paradoxes. And then he says, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one taken, the other left. Two families outside the ark. One decides to go in, the other decides to stay out. Two families, well, a husband and wife in Sodom and Gomorrah. The husband flees, the wife looks back. Oh, remember the lesson learned. Now, this also seems to hint at the parable of the ten virgins because it's 50% in all of these, right? You have two men, one and then the other. Two women, one and then the other. Ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. Are we talking 50%? Or is this less a matter of math and more a matter of you have two options? Choose wisely. Because if it's 50-50, picture not in terms of like me versus someone else, but me choosing the right versus me choosing the wrong. Me being wheat or me being tares. Me fleeing to the mountains or me looking back. So much of apocalyptic literature, and that's scriptural writing that speaks of the last days. The book of Revelation is that. Uh, book, much of the book of Daniel is that. Uh, Nephi's visions of the tree of life is apocalyptic. But one of the trademarks of apocalyptic literature is its stark duality. It's, there's no more shades of gray. It's black and white. There's no more middle ground. You had to choose a side and go in one direction or the other. It's harvest time. Until that hour, it's all mingled together. But at that moment, it is an entire separation of sheep from goats and wheat from tares and righteous from wicked and wise from foolish. So choose you this day whom ye will serve. That's what the Lord is asking of us. Which direction will you head in? That's the one out of two. Will you focus on God or on yourself? Will you focus on yourself or on other people? Will you lose your life? in all of its selfishness, and end up finding yourself with a new life in Christ. That's the wise. That's the sheep. That's the wheat. That is supposed to be us. He then says in verse 37, And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And that's an interesting question. We kept focusing on the when, Lord. He wants to focus more on the what, Lord. This is what you're supposed to be doing. But the where? Hmm. Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. And by body, think carcass. I mean, yes, this is kind of a disgusting visual image, but uh, they'd be used to it. Okay, it's some roadkill, and there's a body, and what's going to happen there? 
Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered. Picture your birds of prey or scavengers. And they're going to come and feast upon the body wherever it is. Now, the JST softens this and it makes it a little more palatable. This is the JST of Luke 17, verse 36 and 37. They answered and said unto him, Where, Lord, shall they be taken? So there's a fuller question. Uh, where will they be taken? Where's the ark going to come to rest? Where is the, the place to flee if you're trying to escape Sodom and Gomorrah? Where will they be taken? And Jesus said unto them, Wheresoever the body is gathered, or in other words, whithersoever the saints are gathered, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Or, let me clarify, thither will the remainder be gathered together. Now, this is maybe the only time in Scripture that it's good to be roadkill. <laughs> that the Lord is using a carcass as a positive symbol of, of the gathered righteous, the saints. Now, think about a body. Paul's going to use this often when it talks about the body of Christ being the members of the church. Okay, So here's the body. Now, don't think, again, this is where parables break down and you don't want to take every single element of a symbol. When it starts to go like, eh, I'm not sure about that, then realize you, went, you took the symbol too far. Okay? So it's like, wait, so the body of Christ is going to be some kind of rotting corpse, some putrid carcass? No, no, no. <laughs> Let's just use an example that where you have a carcass, the birds just come flocking. Okay? And so where you have the body of Christ... Won't the righteous come flocking? Won't they come gathering to these assemblies of faithful saints? That's the gathering of Israel. And so if you can have the body of Christ gathered together, not as a dead carcass, but as a living body, okay, then the eagles out there will come swooping in to join the saints in places of safety. Again, it's a strange metaphor because of the carcass and eagles uh, examples. But to think about the gathering of the righteous, to me there's something beautiful. And then establishing stakes of Zion where peace and, and righteousness prevail, no wonder the others will come running. No wonder the others will come flying in on eagles' wings. I love that he describes those who have not yet come, Israel in their scattered state, as eagles and flying in to be among the faithful. Oh, I hope we can open the doors immediately when they come and knock. The JST then continues in verse 38 through 40. This he spake, signifying the gathering of his saints and of angels descending and gathering the remainder unto them the one from the bed, the other from the grinding, the other from the field, whithersoever he listeth. That's why you're getting one out of those two. The, whoever was prepared, the ones that can show their, their eagle wings and the angels come down and recognize them. It's not just the angels plucking out the wicked like we saw in section 63. It's the angels coming down and gathering out the righteous to bring them to Zion. He goes on, for verily there shall be new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and there shall be no unclean thing for the earth becoming old even as a garment having waxed in corruption wherefore it vanisheth away and the footstool remaineth 
sanctified, cleansed from all sin. How's that for the earth's promised paradisiacal glory? In fact, so much of what we're seeing today boils down to the 10th article of faith, which sadly seems to be everyone's least favorite. Back in the old days when you'd have to quote a, an article of faith to graduate from primary, anyone old enough to remember that? They don't do that anymore. We take it easy on these 12-year-olds. <laughs> but back in the day, yeah, you got up in, in sacrament meeting and quoted your favorite article of faith. I only seem to remember two ever being quoted. <laughs> you'd either quote the first one because it's so simple, or if, you're, if you were a show-off, you'd quote the 13th because that's so long. <laughs> but the 10th, I don't think, ever got quoted. And yet it's so appropriate to what we're studying here. When we just saw a new heaven and a new earth, this footstool being sanctified and cleansed, no wonder it needed water in Noah's day and fire in, in ours. No wonder that fire had to be kindled and a time of cleansing prophesied. Think about the 10th article of faith and all that it prophesies. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel. That's the angels descending and gathering those that have not yet come. There's the, the eagles swooping down to join the body of Christ. So a literal gathering of Israel. In the restoration of the ten tribes, we believe that too. In fact, we don't just believe it, we're making it happen. What else do we believe? That Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. Zion built, Zion below, that's our, our post-millennialism. we got work to do. We've got, to, we've got to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ. But then he will come. Here's our premillennialism. That Christ will reign personally upon the earth. Don't figuralize that. Don't explain it away. Go keep, keep mowing the lawn at Adam and Diamond. He will reign. And the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. That's a new heaven and a new earth. That's sanctified and cleansed from all sin. That's the day we're looking forward to and the day that we're preparing for. <sighs> is that enough of an introduction? <laughs> that is Luke 12, Luke 17. I mean, technically we're supposed to be in Luke 21 today because that's really signs of the time central. That's the Luke equivalent of Matthew 24 and 25. But we needed to go back. I wanted it all under the same umbrella. So this week we could just, we don't have to have our mind going in a million different themes, but just one. Second coming of Christ. But please remember, Jesus has been teaching disciples about it all along. He doesn't just wait and spring it on them on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday of Holy Week. No, he's been giving them heads up all along the way. But here we'll fast forward. We come to Holy Week. It's Tuesday. Two days ago was Sunday, Palm Sunday, and the triumphal entry. Just yesterday was Holy Monday and the cleansing of the temple. The cursing of the fig tree goes back home, spends the night Tuesday, come back to the temple. The fig tree is withered and dead. He continues to teach. He cleanses the temple rhetorically uh, in terms of the minds and hearts of all those scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Tuesday's a busy day. And then, is it Tuesday afternoon? Is it Tuesday evening? Is he leaving the temple why not go back to Bethany and spend another night? I don't know. But he goes up the Mount of Olives instead. Are they camping out? It is a little closer to Jerusalem. You know, saves yourself the two-mile walk back to Martha's home. But here, 
we will see two things happen before the Olivet Discourse officially begins. Two things that happen right before Matthew 24 hits. And what we'll see are the, the widow and her might and the Savior's weeping over Jerusalem. These two accounts are so beautiful to, to study. And my favorite version of the widow's might story is in Mark chapter 12. Keep this in context of second coming, since that's what's on the Savior's mind. And what will he see us doing? How will he see us behaving? What glimpses will he catch of us in these last moments before we turn in our exam? Well, what is this woman turning in? Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat over against the treasury. So kind of looking across the temple mount, temple square, we would call it, and sees the treasury. They have these kind of upturned trumpet-like receptacles that people would put their, their contributions in. And Jesus is sitting across the way looking. And then notice this phrase. And he beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. Now, the par the, it's not a parable. Sorry, this is a real story. Always keep that in mind, by the way. I've heard a lot of people say, oh yeah, the parable of the ten lepers. It's like, that wasn't a parable. It really happened. Okay? And this is not the parable of the widow's might. She was a real woman, a real widow, and she had a real might, and she really put it in. But usually when we talk about it, we describe the percentages, right? And, and Jesus does too, but not yet. We will see shortly how much she gave versus how much the wealthy people gave and how much of a percentage of their income each, each person's donation was. Okay? So yes, the Lord is very interested in how much. But his first interest, and that's why I love the Mark account, his first interest wasn't how much. It was just how. He sat there looking, watching, beholding how the people cast in their money. Did you ever notice that before? Like I said, yeah, we'll get to the how much in just a second. But right now, just pause on the how. And as Jesus watching people come and go, and doesn't even care how much it is, but just watches them. Are they doing this to be seen of man? We're back to the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, is it on the street corner? Arms outstretched, loud voices? This, this describes Pharisees, hypocrites, multiplying words to be heard of man. This is the Pharisee in the parable of, of the publican and Pharisee. Praying to himself, since God doesn't want to hear that kind of self-adoration. What about those who pray humbly? How they pray mattered a lot to Jesus. How they fast matters a lot to Jesus. Disfiguring your face, looking like you're suffering, or no? <laughs> Clean up your act. Let God know you're fasting, not the people around you. Well, in this case, how do you give your tithes and offerings? How do you consecrate to the Lord? I'm not even going to worry about how much. I just want to see how you do it. Is it humbly or is it pridefully? Do you stand there and draw attention to you as you... Or even the, do, you, do you break it up into small bills so you, it, looks, it takes a long time to keep passing it into the plate? Are the rich using smaller coins so they can just... Can you hear it? As it, as it clinks at the bottom of that trumpet-like receptacle. And man, it just keeps coming. Can you hear this? How are you doing it? How do you serve in your calling? 
How do you forgive other people? How do you go to the temple? How do you magnify things? And is the magnifying glass on you? Hoping that everyone will see, well, Jesus is seen. And he might be seen more than we realize. What's our motive? What's in our heart? And we can talk about what was in your wallet later. Well, he sees that in verse 42. There came a certain poor widow. And poor widow is a redundancy, if I've ever heard one. Okay, If you're a widow, then almost invariably you are poor. No one's there to provide for you. Especially if you have children, you have others to provide for. How are you going to survive? Think Ruth and Naomi just gleaning in the fields of barley, hoping to find enough to sustain themselves. This poor widow comes. Picture Jesus seeing her. Is she embarrassed even to be there? Does she stand out, like a, stick out like a sore thumb because of her clothing there in the holiest spot? The glories and grandeurs of the temple of God itself? Recently cleansed, as of yesterday, by Jesus. The money changers still gone. The people who sell their doves and other animals. It's all cleared out. And here comes this poor widow. And she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. Now, if there were ever an embarrassing amount, it would be that. But not for Jesus. He called unto him his disciples and said unto them, oh, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. And they're probably thinking, well, are you kidding? That, no, that, I barely even heard the clink. And then the Lord explains his math. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want. In the Luke account, it says of her penury. And that word means extreme poverty. Absolute destitution. Poor widow doesn't quite do justice to just how poor she was. But this poor woman, she of her want, did cast in all that she had, even all her living all her living, that's an interesting phrase too. Her life, her living, who she was, she has nothing left. Which means, is there any life left in her? I honestly wonder if she's meant to be the New Testament equivalent of the widow of Zarephath from the Old Testament. Because when Elijah came to her and said, will you make a cake of meal for me? And what did she have left? One handful of meal, one tiny, a few drips of oil in the cruise. That, that's it. These are, I'm down to my last two mites. If I give this to you, then I will have no more living left. And yet she gave to Elijah. Now in Elijah's case, remember we studied this at length last year, he told her in advance, if you'll give to me, God will continue to give to you. He will provide. You won't be a widow if you're married to the God of Israel. And he will provide. And he did. She knew in advance, in this poor widow's case, also giving her last handful of a meal, her last drops of oil, without a prophet there to reassure her, 
in some ways I'm even more impressed with his widow, just to have the faith I will give to God. Last year we talked about the fact that if this woman hadn't given it to Elijah, she would have lasted, what, a few more hours? Her, this, this would have been her last meal instead of the last meal being her last meal? Does it really make that much of a difference? Well, for her, it was, I'll give it up. If, it's, if I can trust this prophet and the word of the Lord, then this is an investment in my future. And I will give away all that I have, trusting that God will more than make it up to me. And that's exactly the faith of this poor widow. What am I going to do with my last two, farthing, my last two mites? One farthing. Spend it on myself? And then die tomorrow? Or give it to God? As the tiniest of down payments, as the most insignificant of investments, but trusting the Malachi measure. That if I will give to God, then he will open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing upon me greater than I have room to receive. And that's what I'm banking on. I have no other bank or need of one. I love the faith of this woman. I love her willingness. It's not just that this is a story about more than just the percentage of how much you give. The beauty of tithing is it's 10%. And if it's 10% of a lot, then it's a lot. But if it's 10% of a little, then it's very little. And if it's 10% of nothing, then it's still nothing. Tithing is something everyone can afford to pay. And the fact that the Lord grades on a curve. And when he deals with how much, it's as a portion of what you have to give. And even that is just a subheading of the how that he really cares, cares about but also just seeing faith. If I give to God, then God will give to me. At least that's what I believe. That's the attitude behind tithing. That's the attitude behind offerings and the attitude behind consecration and church service. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be added unto me. Clothing the lilies, providing for the fowls. The Lord taking care of his people. This woman's absolutely incredible. I'll also point out that there were two mites, which means she could have given only one. We usually call this the story of the widow, the widow's mite, singular. When no, it's clear here, there were two of them. I remember sometimes on, when I was trick-or-treating as a kid, and you always wanted the big king-size candy bars, but every once in a while, this happened very rarely, you go to a house, trick-or-treat, and somebody would put in a penny and that angered me. It wasn't even worth the trip up your driveway. A penny? Seriously? And I used to think, what if they put it, dropped in the penny and then laughed and said, don't spend it all in one place? Because the irony there, that's adding insult to injury. Because the irony there is, what do you mean don't spend it all in one place? I have no other option. You can't, I can say, can you break a 20? But I can't say, can you break a penny? Because that can't be broken down any further. You couldn't have given me anything less if you were going to give me anything at all. That's pathetic. Well, notice the fact this woman had two mites. We're amazed that she couldn't give any more. She gave all her living. It's all she had. But what's equally amazing is she could have given 
less. And I'll just split it. You can have one mite and I'll have the other. No, she gave everything. Did you know that two mites make a farthing, as was described here? A farthing, that's like a British term, right? What is this in the Roman Empire? What are we talking about here? And the different coinage of the realm. Remember when we talk about the penny appointed? And the 11th hour worker got a penny just like the 12 hour laborer did? It wasn't a penny because that was the least amount and the Lord can only give that. Now, symbolically true. He gives salvation and it's, it's salvation across the board. But there are plenty of smaller coins in Roman coinage. And the, one of the smallest was this farthing, as it's translated by the King James translator. A farthing was 164th of a, of a denarius. And the denarius was the penny for the day's wage. And if it took two mites to make a farthing, then from 164th of a day's wage, now you're at one 128th of a day's wage. That's what a mite is. Wow. Why the 128? That sounds really specific. Well, keep chopping things in half. And I actually wonder about this when it comes to the parable of laborers in the vineyard. Those that came at the sixth hour, if a day's wage is one penny, then six hours of work should be one half of that, right? I don't know the, the names of those coins, but half of a denarius. Well, what if you only came for a fourth of the day? Then you need one fourth of a denarius. Is there a coin for that? Well, what if, let's cut that in half. Well, one eighth and cut that and one sixteenth and cut that one thirty second and then one sixty fourth. Oh, and then cut that in half again. We're getting negligible fractions here. Even a penny for us is one one hundredth of a dollar. But a mite is one one hundred and twenty eighth of a day's wage. I actually did the math. If you work for 12 hours times 60 minutes, and divided that, what is that, 720 minutes is a full day's work in those days. Then what would 160, one 164th of a full day's work be? It would be five and a half minutes, like 5.6, if you want to get technical. Uh, now we're looking at lawyers that are charging for their time, right? Uh, and oh yes, I, I gave another 164th of a day's work, so you, I'm going to charge you for that. And, and it's interesting here. That's how, this, this is five minutes of work. She has two of them. Okay, fine. 10, what, 11 minutes of work. That's all I have. And I'll give it all to God. If this isn't second coming prep, I don't know what is. Can I give God any more? Not running faster than I have strength. Right? Not... Not becoming so overzealous, having wisdom and having order, but having self-sacrifice and humility and a consecrated heart. This is an incredible woman. And remember, it, it's how is even more important than how much. What a story. Now, in the Luke account of the widow, we saw it in Mark. We studied it in Mark. But if you saw the Luke account, keep it in context. As soon as that story ends, it's then that Jesus begins describing the destruction of the temple, which gets us into the Olivet Discourse and the signs of the times. Uh, you see this in Luke chapter 21, verse 5 through 7. 
And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, which again is like, like a perfect segue from the story of the widow's might, right? She's there at the temple. Jesus is watching her in the temple. All these goodly gifts and goodly stones. And, and just, it was a wonder of the ancient world. I mean, the temple of Herod there in Jerusalem was the largest sanctuary, religious sanctuary in the entire Roman Empire. It was incredible. It spent decades beautifying this place. And so, yes, ooing and aahing over the goodly stones and the gifts, especially the ones that were paid for by, not by widows and their mites, but by wealthy people and all of their abundance. Well, as they're talking about that, Jesus said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And then we're off and running with the Olivet Discourse. Uh, that, that's where we would shift to Matthew 24 and 25, which we'll do in just a moment. But Matthew 24 also has a lead in. And it's not the widow's might. It's not there at the temple, though Jesus has spent his time there decrying the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. That's Matthew 23. As we're about to turn the page into Matthew 24 to really get into the signs of the times and the Olivet Discourse. It's often, ca often called the little apocalypse. Uh, the big apocalypse is John's, the book of Revelation. Matthew 24 and 25 is the little one that we see Jesus teach and Matthew record. But what you see before we get there is Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. Divine tears, those didn't just fall in Moses chapter 7. They fall in the New Testament as well. As Jesus is weeping over a city that he loves, but a city that is lost and won't be found. What they're in for is exactly what Jesus said there in Luke. Not one stone left upon another. You see goodly stones, pretty soon there won't be any stones, goodly or otherwise. The Roman legion, so sick and tired. I mean, Jerusalem has been a problem child for a long time. And it was a problem for the Assyrians and a problem for the Babylonians and a problem for the Greeks. And now it's a problem for the Romans. Let's just end this for good. And we'll take this incredible wonder of the world and we will leave people wondering what became of it. Because we're going to tear down the temple stone by stone. And in fact, since the Temple Mount itself is this big platform built out to extend the, the, the mountain, Mount Zion, to increase it dramatically in size, to create a temple square on this cliffside. Well, on the edge of it, it's a cliff now down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Many believe that it wasn't the top of the temple building that Jesus was tempted to jump off of. It was the edge of the Temple Mount, jumped down to the depths of the Kidron Valley instead. Well, that's basically what the Roman soldiers did, was take the stones of the temple and push them to the edge of Temple Square and shove them off until they came toppling down to the Roman paved roads below and the, the paved streets of the marketplace. To this day, there are cracks in the stone at the bottom because the stones were so heavy they got pushed off the edge of the Temple Mount and then cracked and shattered down below. Archaeologists, when they uncovered all this, were shocked by it. Most of it they've cleared away and cleaned up to make it look like, oh, and this is what the 
the ancient mar uh, marketplace would have looked like. But they did leave a pile of rubble to let people, let modern tourists know, but that's what it looked like in the days of Titus. 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, as Jesus prophesied, here are the dents and cracks in the stone. Uh, and then here's the rubble and remains of the stone that came crashing down. It's a, a powerful visual aid there in Jerusalem. And Jesus is prophesying of exactly that, not one stone upon another. Why? Because you have rejected the foundation stone, the chief cornerstone, the one rock of the Redeemer upon which you could have had a sure foundation. No, no stones left. And no wonder Jesus is going to weep over this. You guys have no idea what's coming. Now, we're going to see that lament in Matthew 23 to lead us into Matthew 24. But what amazes me is this might not be the first time that Jesus has lamented over Jerusalem. Because if, well, we'll do this briefly, but if you go back to Luke 19, I mean, technically we're now in Luke 21, but if you go back to Luke 19 and look at verse 41 and 42, notice what Jesus says. This is right after the triumphal entry and right before the cleansing of the temple. And when he was come near, right, triumphal entry just ended, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Oh, those, are, those are devastating words. No wonder the Savior is weeping when he says them. If only you'd known. If only you'd had eyes to see the light of the world. If only you had recognized the Prince of Peace, because think about what you could have had if peace had prevailed. Instead, you approached Jesus with violence, and violence will be your reward. Remember those lines from John Greenleaf Whittier? Of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. No wonder that sadness is bringing tears to Christ's eyes. It might have been. I've come with the kingdom. But you wouldn't accept it. You wouldn't accept me. And then Jesus clarifies the prophecy. The lack of peace that would come. Verse 43 and 45. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side. This is siege warfare. And nobody could do it quite like the Romans. This was siege like the Assyrians did in Isaiah's day. It's siege like the Babylonians did in Jeremiah's day. But this will be a siege in Titus's day. Less than 40 years away. The Romans will come and do all of that. He says, They shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Just like he said in the other prophecy. But here's why. Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Wow. You didn't know the time of your visitation? The first watch, the second watch, the third. Jesus keeps coming. And he'd come to them. He had visited them. Makes me wonder, honestly, as I was pondering this verse, do I know the times of Christ's visitation to me? 
Do I remember the times he has come and been with me? Do I change as a result? Am I looking for additional opportunities to come unto him and have him come unto me? How the Lord wants to pay you a visit. Will we be able to open the door immediately when he knocks? No wonder then. Jesus seems to weep every time he talks about the second coming. Matthew 24, as we'll turn to in just a moment, is second coming central. It is signs of the times. It's the single greatest chapter in the New Testament of Jesus teaching what those, what those last days will entail. It is, keep it in mind to realize what is Jesus saying as he leads into Matthew 24, because Matthew 23 ends with Jesus's lament. It's the same kind of weeping we saw there in Luke 19. Turn with me now to Matthew 23 and see the same kind of lament. It's a different time period, okay? So is he crying again? But this time crying specifically with the signs of the times in mind. The way he says it is this is right on the heels of scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, okay? He's cleansing the temple rhetorically. He's there on that holy mount trying to make the people there a little holier and realizing that they won't listen, or they don't have eyes to see, his own eyes then fill, fill with tears. Matthew 23, verse 36. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And that's the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. This generation, you're only a few decades away. The JST adds to this, ye bear testimony against your fathers when ye yourselves are partakers of the same wickedness in other words, you condemn in others what you're guilty of yourselves. How's that for scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites? He says, Behold, your fathers did it through ignorance, but ye do not. Therefore their sins shall be upon your heads. You know better. I'm right here in front of you. They rejected, this is back to the parable of the wicked husbandman. They rejected servants. You've rejected God's only begotten, fully beloved son. You, you of all people should know better. And then come the tears. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He says it twice, just like he did when he was trying to calm a troubled Martha. 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 Well, here it's the entire city. It's the house of Israel. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. Yes, that is the parable of the wicked husband. And now they're going to do worse things to him and he knows it. But rather than chasten them, he simply weeps with them because they wouldn't listen and there's now no turning back. He says in some of the most famous words he ever uttered, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then Matthew 23 ends, and we're on to Matthew 24, and the signs of the times, and the second coming, and the destruction of the wicked, and Armageddon, and millennial reign, and everything else Jesus is going to teach at this Olivet Discourse. But in these last words leading up to it, your house is left to you desolate. 
and you'll never see me again until you see me with these words on your lips. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Does that phrase ring any bells? That's the exact language they used in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, all four writers, when they described the triumphal entry. Among other things, Hosanna and blessed is the son of David. But they use that language as well. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Which means the second coming will be another triumphal entry. The ultimate one. The one on Palm Sunday was nothing compared to what it will be on that great and glorious day. But he's talking about that day. He's going to shift to an entire discourse on that day. But the day will come when there will be an entry unlike any other. And the righteous will truly rejoice because it's triumphant, I'll tell you that much. Triumphing over sin and death, all over all of our struggles and sorrows. That's what we're headed for. But where are we now? Your house will be left desolate. Notice he calls it your house. Is he mean the house of Israel? Maybe. The house of Israel will be left desolate. You thought the scattering by the Assyrians was bad. You thought the destruction by the Babylonians was bad. Remember, each fish gets gobbled up by a bigger fish. And the Babylonians were bigger than the Assyrians, and then the Greeks were bigger. The Persians were bigger than the Babylonians, and the Greeks were bigger than the Persians, and the Romans were bigger than the Greeks. Oh, yeah. The Roman legions will come marching into Jerusalem, and your house will be left desolate. Josephus estimated 1.1 million Jewish casualties. And blood running through the streets of Jerusalem like it was a river. No wonder the Savior is mourning. I also wonder your house, the temple. Because yes, the temple will be burned by fire and then dismantled, the rocks thrown off the edge. Early on, he called it my father's house. Later, he called it his house. Now, is he calling it your house? A place that you could have called home and made your sanctuary. But no, you turned it into a den of thieves. And your house will be left desolate as a result. But go back to the earlier verse, verse 37, when he speaks of gathering and hens and chickens. This is a little <laughs> cleaner version than gathering like eagles and bodies. But it's gathering nonetheless. And the gathering in this verse takes place because the mother hen, and notice it's a hen, not a rooster. This is maternal imagery, not paternal imagery. And when we describe the love of God, it's usually maternal imagery that's used. Isaiah did it all the time. But to gather this mother hen, recognizing a danger that her chicks are not old enough to know about yet. She knows what's coming. They don't. And so she clucks frantically, inviting them to come and gather to her. She covers them under her protective wings. And come what may, she will face it. In order to protect them from whatever's outside. It's a glorious image. And what's amazing about it is it's an image that is repeated so often in Scripture. 
There's something about those protective wings that bring safety. So notice things like Psalm 17, verse 8. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Or Psalm 36, 7. The children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Or Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Or Psalm 61, verse 4, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. And realize, these are the Psalms, which means this is poetry. And remember Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas? So when he talks of the tabernacle and then talks about the covering, the covert of thy wings, it's the same thing. This temple, this tabernacle, this house of the Lord, that's your place of refuge. That's your covert from storm and from rain. That's the shadow of the Savior's wings. No wonder the book of Malachi and the entire Old Testament as we have it ends with this beautiful prophecy. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Wings. It, this is an image that runs throughout Scripture. Keep an eye out for it. And keep, out, keep an eye out for elements that echo the wing. Like the tabernacle, like the tent flaps. How's that for a wing being spread out to invite you in? How about the arms of mercy that the Scriptures talk about so frequently? That's a wing. Remember when we studied the book of Ruth? And she went and met with Boaz that night and asked him as a near redeemer to spread out his skirt over her. And the skirt, the extremity of the clothing, the edge of it, it's the same Hebrew word as wing. And the word for near kinsman is the same word as redeemer. So when he says, you're a near kinsman, cover me with thy skirt, She's basically saying, you're my redeemer, so cover me with thy wing. This is a, chicken, a baby chick that comes running to the mother hen. Remember the woman who dared, the woman with the issue of blood, who came and reached out as far as she could to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. That's the skirt. That's the edge. That's the wing. The furthest feather is what she's trying to come in contact with. Because she's seeking that protection under the mother hen. That is the image of gathering that the Lord is trying to impress upon us. How oft would I have gathered you? As a loving mother hen. In the third Nephi version of this, by the way, and this is, this is mind-blowing. Almost every time that Jesus talks about the second coming, He's going to preface it with some talk about gathering like a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. This is Matthew 23, comes right before 24, signs of the time central. In 3 Nephi 11 is the coming of Christ among the Nephites, which for all intents and purposes is our preview of coming attractions. The Book of Mormon is the scale model of the last days, and 3 Nephi 11 is his first coming to the Nephites. It represents the second coming of Jesus to the world. And if that's 3 Nephi 11, then guess what's 3 Nephi 10? 3 Nephi 10 is the hen. And in that one, Jesus pulls out all the stops and uses all the tenses of the verbs he can think of. He says, how oft 
Have I gathered you? Past tense. How oft would I have gathered you? Conditional tense. How oft will I gather you? Future tense. Jesus is doing everything he possibly can to try to be as warm and welcoming as imaginable. He does the same thing in the Doctrine and Covenants twice. In Doctrine and Covenants 29 and Doctrine and Covenants 43, Jesus will, and both of those chapters, by the way, are places that talk about the signs of the times and the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are so many revelations in the DNC that are second coming focused. And in those two, 29 and 43, guess what he talks about? A mother hen and clucking and gathering and yet having to end with this haunting phrase, but ye would not. I did everything in my power. I did all that I could. You wouldn't come. And so what am I, what am I left with? I can't force you. I can't drag you kicking and screaming. I honor agency. That's how it works. And bringing you into a place of safety, you have to be willing to come. And if you don't, then Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It didn't have to be this way. If you had known the peace that was being promised you, if only you'd had the eyes to see. But ye would not. Now, in our Book of Mormon year, when we studied 3510, I shared with you a poem that I had written when I was a student in Jerusalem 25 years ago. I fell in love with that place. I understood why Jesus would weep over it. And knowing the history of all it's been through, it's not just the Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans. It's been all kinds of other people attacking it ever since. And I was haunted by that phrase, but ye would not. And so near the end of my time there, I tried to put down in paper, on paper my feelings. And realizing that Jesus said that kind of language right before Matthew 24 and right before 3 Nephi 11 and in Doctrine and Covenants 29 and 43, and it was just all pressing down upon me. And these were the words that came as a result. He looked upon Jerusalem, where prophets long had vigil kept. The tide of sin they'd failed to stem, so Jesus raised his voice and wept. O city of iniquity, who kills and stones her holy men, how oft would I have gathered thee as chickens by their mother hen? For when some danger prompts her cry, the cover of her wings is sought. Jerusalem, with judgment nigh, I called to you, but ye would not. The same was true of Lehi's seed, when they in sin by death were caught. His plea to change they did not heed, so came his words, but ye would not. In modern times he calls again, he beckons us to gather near. To find protection from the hen we need but call in mighty prayer. He calls to us through men today who long the gospel truths have taught. Yet once again we hear him say, I would have saved, but ye would not. The Lord will plead, the Lord will call, with love he'll raise a warning voice. His open arms extend to all, but we alone can make the choice. What grief we'd feel to see the face of him who the atonement wrought, and hear from him to our disgrace the bitter words 
but ye would not. Can we sense, even in the smallest degree, some of what the Savior is feeling? This sorrow that's beginning to seep into his soul. This is it. This is his last chance to teach. This is Holy Week. This is Tuesday night. Wednesday, he'll prepare himself for a Thursday unlike any other with Last Supper and Gethsemane. Friday and its crucifixion. I just, I tried. I did everything I could. What more could I have done for my vineyard? I guess nothing. I gave you everything I have and everything I am. But ye would not. No wonder there are tears here. I just pray that he doesn't have to shed any more for us. That when we hear him call, we will come running. To feel embraced by the arms of safety, I testify of this mother hen. And the security that is to be found under his wing. My dad was a big guy. He was a sergeant in the Marine Corps when I was born. And when his... Some, he usually sat on the stand in bishoprics and state presidencies, but every once in a while, in between callings, he'd sit with us. And if I get, ever got to sit next to him, and he'd put his hand on my back or arm around my shoulder, oh, you knew it was there. It was a heavy arm. But one that brought so much comfort. I just knew I was safe when Dad was around. And to think of this mother hen calling and pleading and doing all he can to persuade us to come unto him. Will we come? That's what this boils down to. As we turn the page to Matthew 24 now and see this magnificent Olivet Discourse, this little apocalypse, as we put into terms I should say, as we, dis as we really start studying the signs of the times, which we are living through, may we not lose sight of the context of compassion that Christ provides for us. Don't read Matthew 24 without the end of 23 giving you momentum to turn the page. As a student of mine years ago taught, as we were talking in the Doctrine and Covenants about the Second Coming and all these scary signs of the times, and we were talking about the great and dreadful day of the Lord and that it's great for the righteous and it's dreadful for the wicked. And that's as far as I went with that. One of my students with a deeper insight than I'd ever had on this concept raised her hand and said, but don't you think for Jesus it'll be both? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? Oh, I think for him it'll just be great. He's come and the, the righteous are there to receive him. And this sweet, compassionate soul just said, but he loves the wicked too. And everything he did for all of God's children, of course he'll rejoice with the righteous and it will be a great day for him. But to see those that would not, the chicks for whom he died, and the mother hen still clucking, trying to gather them in, Oh yes, it will be dreadful for him 
to see those that were unprepared. No wonder he teaches so powerfully how to prepare. No wonder he invites us so forcefully to go and prepare the world. Because Christ is coming. And he wants this day to be great for everyone. Matthew 24 then begins. On the heels of this this note of call and compassion from the mother hen. And as we turn there, we're actually going to turn to Joseph Smith, Matthew, in the Pearl of Great Price. As we saw earlier in the Luke chapters we already studied, there's a lot of JST when it comes to second coming material. And that should tell us something. Uh, If there's anything the adversary wants us to be confused about and not quite ready for, it's the coming of Christ. He, he wants to, conf- to mess things up on the syllabus in hopes that we don't think there's any due date or we're confused about the possible signs that the Lord gives us that the due date is on its way. Uh, it should tell us something, that we need so much inspired help to make sense of the second coming. And for this, we'll turn to the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, the fact that Matthew 24 would need so much rearranging, really. And that's why we need a whole new version of it. A couple of footnotes won't, won't quite cut it. Because, yes, there are places where a phrase needed to be inserted. And that's what we're used to when we study the JST. We look at the footnotes, and there's just some little phrase that was missing. Or if it's longer, we'll see it in the appendix. But usually it's just a, a, a big chunk of scriptures that goes in the same order. When it comes to Matthew 24, when Joseph got there in the JST... There was massive changes. There were ad- additions and insertions, but there all, were also rearrangements. And this text should actually come after this, and this one belongs here. And one of the greatest gifts of the JST is it clarifies that there were two questions being asked and two questions being answered. And while there's a lot of overlap and similarity between the two questions, there is a distinction between them, and for good reason. Uh, we're going to see that as we, as we get here, because the apostles were wondering about this temple being destroyed stone by stone. How's that going to work? And yet you're also talking about the end of the world and these cosmic things. Uh, the main second coming, like a lightning flash that the entire world sees, that seems a little bit bigger than Rome laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. So can you clarify for us what you're talking about? And then clarify for us when you're talking about those things. Uh, No wonder we need a whole new chapter. And I find it fascinating also that it was included in the Pearl of Great Price when the Pearl of Great Price was meant to be kind of a best of. As the saints in the British Isles particularly didn't have access to all the revelations that the saints in, in Utah had, for example. And so what, do, what does the British mission presidency decide? Well, let's make him a best of. And let's gather some of the most important revelations that we have, and we'll put them into a little book that's so valuable, spiritually speaking, that we'll call it a pearl of great price. And we'll include the JST chapters of Genesis that really put Moses back on the map. We'll include the chapters from Enoch and what Zion really looks like since they're, we're gathering there soon. We will include the JST of Matthew 24, since these are the latter days, and we have to be well prepared for the second coming of Christ. And then we'll include Joseph Smith history. We'll include the book of uh, some of the book of Abraham, 
the prayer price is a masterpiece. But the fact that this chapter is included there lets you know how the saints felt about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand it. So here we have it. Joseph Smith Matthew, verse 1. For I say unto you that ye shall not see me henceforth, and know that I am he of whom it is written by the prophets, until ye shall say, Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, in the clouds of heaven, and all the holy angels with him, then understood his disciples that he should come again on the earth after that he was glorified and crowned on the right hand of God. Now that's not the JST of Matthew 24, verse 1. That's the JST of the very end of Matthew 23. After Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Remember, we saw that. I, I will come again. You won't see me till then. When you rejoice, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. The ultimate triumphal entry. That puts in perspective, at least for the apostles, oh, this is bigger than just the destruction of Jerusalem then. You're going to return on that kind of cosmic scale. Okay. That's why the clarification. He, they get it. He's going to come again upon the earth. So this puts what follows in a second coming context. Then, verse 2 and 3. And this is really where Matthew 24 begins. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. He'd been in there watching the widow donate her might, right? He'd been in there crying repentance to the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. He departed from the temple, and the disciples came to him for to hear him. So this is more private than the teaching he'd been doing there on the Temple Mount. Now, it's still not as private as it soon will be. We're starting to kind of whittle away the disciples until we have his apostles alone with the Master. But this group says, Master, show us concerning the buildings of the Temple. Remember the Luke version after the widow's might? They saw the goodly stones. They saw the gifts. So they're wondering about the temple first and foremost. In the Mark version of this, they say, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. I mean, there's this it's kind of going on like this architectural tour. Like, isn't this place amazing? But then our inspired version goes on. As thou hast said, they shall be thrown down and left unto you desolate. It's like, how? They're, they're trying to wrap their heads around this. This is the most glorious building on earth. It's thy house. You just cleansed it. What do you mean it will be thrown down and left desolate? Now, Jesus answers their question here. He said unto them, See ye not all these things, and do ye not understand them? Mm, there's more than meets the eye. You, you've got to get past the surface level understanding here. Verily I say unto you, he goes on, there shall not be left here upon this temple one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. We're talking complete destruction. We are going to wipe the Temple Mount clean. And what does that do? Well, in a construction site, if there was already something present that was condemned, and he had now condemned the house, it was not his anymore. He, he tried to cleanse it, but they weren't accepting him. And so what's left? Well, you raise, R-A-Z-E, the old building, so that you can raise, R-A-I-S-E, a new one. His own temple will be crucified, but it will rise again in the resurrection. The temple mount will be leveled. The temple will be destroyed, but it will be built again. The earth itself destroyed, but a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. It's a big picture, what he's trying to get them to understand, and will make way for a new beginning. Will we be ready for it? Well, time will tell. 
verse 4, Jesus left them. So he's now getting further and further away from the temple. Maybe it's to get an even better vantage point from a distance. Then again, it's also to come not just from one place, but come to another. Because he left them and went upon the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives will be a site of ascension. And to think of that vantage point, to look back at Jerusalem and its temple, look forward to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Look forward beyond that to the descension and second coming of Jesus Christ. There he is on the Mount of Olives. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately. Now Mark specifically mentions Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These two sets of brothers. Were the other eight with them as well? Interesting to think of this special group of servants that Jesus is going to try to help understand better than anyone else. This goes back to Peter's question back in Luke. Who needs to know this stuff? Well, you guys definitely do. And this is what they say to Jesus. Tell us, when shall these things be, which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and the Jews? And what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world? Now, in the King James Version of that, it's... It's similar, it includes the same kinds of stuff, the same basic question, but it's hard to tell that there were two different questions there, separated by the and. So in the JST, it makes it really clear they have two questions. One is is proximate and the other is ultimate. In other words, short term and long term. The short term is, tell us about the destruction of the temple and the Jews. And that's only 40, 40 years away. And... Tell us about the sign of thy coming, second coming, end of the world, destruction of the wicked. We want to know about that as well. And thanks to the way the inspired version rearranges the text, it becomes much more clear that Jesus will answer the first question from verse 5 through verse 20. And then he'll shift gears and answer the second question from verse 21 until the end of this chapter. You can see, actually, let's jump ahead and look at verse 21. Because here is the the connective tissue, okay, or the split from one to the other. He says, Behold, these things I have spoken unto you concerning the Jews. So I've just finished answering question number one. And again, after the tribulation of those days, which shall come upon Jerusalem, and then he's often running to answer the second question. Okay, so that's the split point. I just answered question number one. Now I'm answering question number two. But also notice the phrase, and again. I said it splits, but I also called it connective tissue because what he answered in the first one also applies to the second. It just goes far beyond it. In other words, those last, the quote-unquote last days in the, in the decades leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD is a preview of coming attractions or coming destructions for the last days before the second coming of Christ. So not only is the Book of Mormon a scale model of preparing for that coming, but what we see in the destruction of the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans is a preview of that as well. I mean, Isaiah made this famous because he's like, hey, you know what? The destruction of, the ba- of Babylon is a lot like the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. Oh, in fact, the destruction of the Assyrians is a lot like the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. He keeps giving you these previews from his time period. And we're seeing the same thing from Jesus' time period. So what we need to understand as students of Matthew 24, as students of the second coming, 
is, yes, clarify, okay, these verses apply to the, the post, immediate post-New Testament time period, and then the rest of the chapter applies to our days. But the principles and warnings and signs that he gave for the first are part of what he's giving us for the second. That phrase, and again, is really important here, okay? So let's, let's study them verse by verse, sign by sign, and see what we can learn. This is so important. Joseph and Matthew, verse 5, Jesus answered and said unto them. So he's answering their first question. Tell us when the temple will be destroyed. Okay, well, let me, let me preface it with this. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. Whoa. Uh, this is a tough way to answer their first question. When will these things be? Well, I'm not going to be so specific as to give you a date, but let me give you a... Oh, a situation. And when these kinds of things are happening, you'll know that we're getting close. It's like hide-and-go-seek or, or find something with little kids. You don't say, oh, it's hiding behind the, the, the couch. You let them look and you just tell them, oh, warmer. You're getting warm. Oh, you're getting colder. You're getting colder. Here's some of the things. The signs of the times are warmer, warmer, super hot. When you see these things all around you, you'll know that the time is nigh. And what are you seeing? This is fascinating. To me, the, the first sign of the time that Jesus mentions is what? Deception. Take heed. Pay attention. Get, get focused. That no one deceive you. Because there's going to be false Christs that come and deceive many. There's going to be false prophets who deceive many. Three times in a short succession of verses. And the first verses he gives to answer their questions. How do you situate yourself in terms of the destruction of the wicked and the end of times? It will be a day of deception. We'll see that repeated when we get to the second answer before the second coming. But, but and again, if what we see in the first is preview of the second, then prepare yourselves for deception. Or at least attempts at deceiving you. And does that sound familiar? Are you on social media? Do you see fake news out there? Do you, are you hearing things that you aren't, aren't sure if you can trust? Photoshopped virtual reality that is it reality or is it pretended? I, I can't even tell anymore. Was this created by a human being or some AI bot? And it's going to be harder and harder to know what's real and what is not. Elder Bednar gave an amazing talk years ago on virtual reality. Things as they really are, is what he called it. And we are living in a day filled with things that are not what they really are. Deception, even to the point of false Christs and false prophets. What's interesting about that, a Christ is your Messiah, your deliverer. And are we living in a day where people are promising us deliverance from things, but in a way that just won't last? And the get-rich-quick schemes, and the, the easy way out, and 
and you're in the fall stage and you don't like it, well, just start again in a new creation stage and never move on to the atonement one. There are all kinds of, this is the answer, and here's the self-help book, and here's the new life coach and the guru, and false deliverance as well as false direction, because that's where false prophets come in. I, to me, anyway, false, prof, false Christs and false prophets boils down to false deliverance and false direction. What's really going to bring you peace and hope and joy and happiness? And the world only offers counterfeits, false Christs. And then how do I get where I want to go? And what, what matters in life? And who's, around, who's out there to tell me how I should live and how I should think and how I should behave? What directions can I get? And boy, are we surrounded by false prophets that are giving us oh, counterfeit directions, leading, in, in, leading it places that we would never want to go. So be aware of that. Also, be aware of the kind of persecution that you'll face. For uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew, oh yeah, you're going to face all these kinds of things. And he mentions affliction and killing and hatred and being offended and betraying and more hatred. And that sounds a lot like our day as well. No wonder President Nelson had to speak out against contention and disputation so clearly this last general conference. Even within the household of faith, think of that in terms of, I mean, it's one thing to be afflicted and killed and hated of all nations for my name's sake. He warned them about that as early as the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are you. You're in good company. So persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Uh, but to think about the household of faith, church members, think about being offended and betrayed and hated. When it says that many would be offended how oh, there's so many people that fall away from the church out of some kind of offense. I don't like the church's policy on this or on that. Or I don't like that person and the way they reacted to this. Or the way they, I don't like my bishop or my really steady president. Or It's easy for us to become offended. How about betraying one another? That seems to be more open opposition, more open apostasy. And there are all kinds of loud voices out there of people that aren't just offended, but have gone from offended to offender and are now betraying their former beliefs as well as those that may have been former friends and family members. It's sad to see that we live in a day where the most popular anti-Mormonism comes from ex-Mormonism. And those who used to know and are now betraying their former beliefs. And hatred, oh yeah, you see that everywhere too. The disputation and contention that we have to overcome. Those, my friends, are the signs of the times. The first ones that Jesus mentions. Keep that in mind. In the Mark version of all this, by the way, this is Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. He speaks a little more directly to the opposition we'd face. The Lord says, Take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And sure enough, all those things would take place. When we get to the book of Acts soon, we will see Paul face all those kinds of things, councils and synagogues and, and kings. 
And yet, why does it have to happen that way? Keep reading. The gospel must first be published among all nations. The word will spread and it will come in contact with people that don't want it spread any further. So, of course, there will be opposition. But that's what we signed up for. The gospel must be preached. It must be published. But when they shall lead you, Jesus says, and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. And that's a repetition of the counsel he'd given to the apostles at the beginning of their ministry. Don't, 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 don't get over-anxious about what you're going to say. You don't have to have cue cards and, and spell everything out. Trust in the Spirit. Open your mouth and it shall be filled. Because it has to be the Lord that speaks through you, not you speaking for yourself. In the Luke version of all of this, there's another added detail here that I love. Luke 21, verse 14 and 15. Settle it therefore in your hearts, he says, not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. The Greek of those last words, by the way, they, no one will be able to withstand it. No one will be able to contradict it. Why? Because it's not you speaking. It's God speaking. He will give you a mouth. It sounds like Moses. I can't do it. I'm slow of speech. And the Lord's like, who made man's mouth? I got this. He'll give us wisdom. It will be his wisdom that comes when we open our mouths and let it be filled. But we have to settle it in our hearts. We can't be so over-concerned like, what, are you still in need of confirmation when you're going out trying to confirm others? We've got to get right ourselves. We've got to settle it in our hearts that God lives and loves us, that he is a revealer of truth, a giver of wisdom, that he cares about the people that we're sharing the gospel with. We trust him, we trust the process, we trust our conversation partners, and we are here to give you a chance at the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether or not you choose to accept it. Okay, We have to be willing to face opposition and persecution, come what may, because we have things settled in our hearts. How's that for the opposite of being deceived? Mark then adds this detail in Mark 13, 12 and 13. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now we saw already fathers against sons and mothers against daughters. In-laws against in-laws and so on. This, was, this one's even stronger because it's, it's rising up, but also putting them to death. Now, remember what the prodigal son did to his father? Didn't put him to death literally, but did symbolically. I want my inheritance now. And sometimes family members, children, for example, prodigal sons and daughters who leave the faith and leave the family, they do end up putting their parents to death in their memory or at least in certain parts of their relationship. The spiritual connections we had are over, and so I've laid those to rest. I've put them to, I've put them to death. And we live in that time period as well. We have to be prepared for that. We have to be okay with it occurring, knowing that God tried to prepare us for that long, long before. 
can we still have things settled in our hearts, including the, the decision, the determination not to betray those who betray us and not to fight back when they fight us. The father of the prodigal was willing to be treated as one dead, but his son was always alive to him. And we need to reach out in love along those lines as well. In short, we need to endure. Endure to the end. Endure whatever comes. From there, one last detail in Luke 21. In verse 17 through 19, he says, Ye shall be hated for all men for my name's sake. And Luke 21 is just Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, so you get the same ideas here. Hated for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. That wonderful reassurance. And then this incredible piece of advice. In your patience, possess ye your souls. You see, earlier in Luke, it was settle it in your heart. In Mark, it was endure to the end. Now in Luke 21, be patient. And if you'll be patient, you will possess your soul. You wonderful mothers and fathers out there who are worrying about prodigal children, you who are concerned about loved ones who have been offended or have betrayed or that there's feel like, feels like there's so much hatred and animosity, please endure and endure it well. Please settle things in your heart and please, please be patient. Your patience will possess your soul. It's in my hands. I've got a good grip on it. And believe me, our theology allows us to be patient. As I say to my students, Permanent bad news is against my religion. The doctrine of Jesus Christ teaches us of a, a loving set of heavenly parents that are doing anything and everything to bring their children home, including the wayward prodigals. They have settled it in their hearts. They are enduring to the very end, and they're patient. Remember, it's not that the Lord is delaying his coming out of slackness. It's that he's long-suffering and wants us all to have time to repent, to be saved. We can afford to be patient, too. It'll possess our souls. In fact, it'll, give us, it'll help us hold, keep, maintain a grip on the souls of those we love as well. Now back to Joseph Smith Matthew, go to verse 10. We're still in the signs of the first destruction, although they all apply to the second as well. But verse 10, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that remaineth steadfast and is not overcome, the same shall be saved. So there's some more phrases to add to our list of solutions. How do we navigate these last days of trouble and gloom? We settle things in our hearts. We we don't get over-anxious and premeditate that I have to have an answer for every single thing. No, we just live in the light of the Lord and trust that answers will come when needed and we'll open our mouths and they'll be filled with exactly the things that our conversation partners need to hear. We'll endure these things well. Add these to the list. We'll remain steadfast. We won't be overcome. Steadfast and immovable building our foundation upon the rock of the Redeemer, that shafts in the whirlwind, when they come, they won't have any effect on us. We are steadfast. 
and will forever remain that. We will not be overcome, come what may. But what else is coming? This one's a scary one. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. It's ironic because we live in this day of moral relativism when it's so easy to love everybody, right? I mean, love is the watchword. And just let everybody do what they want, and that's love. Well, is it? Is it real love? Is it perfect love, divine love? The love that loves us enough to correct us when we're off? Or has iniquity gotten to the point that there is no Christ-like love left out there? At least not out in the world. That no wonder there's betrayal and no wonder there's hatred. Iniquity abounds. The pure love of Christ requires purity. Charity requires virtue. And yet we live in a day where iniquity is on the increase and love of God, the vertical dimension, and love of neighbor, the horizontal dimension. It's Iniquity is shrinking the cross to the point that the adversary hopes it can be forgotten once and for all. No, we have to be careful of the abounding iniquity and push back against it with love of God and love of others. Verse 12, he then says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, then you shall stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. That last line is the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Do you know what I'm talking about here? Go read Daniel. Again, there's some apocalyptic literature. And when Daniel, we studied it last year, when we talked about that, those last chapters of Daniel, the abomination of desolation, well, let's go back and see it. This is Daniel 11, verse 31. Arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. They shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So the way Daniel says it, the abomination that maketh desolate. The way Jesus says it in the New Testament, the abomination of desolation. But it's the same thing. And what Daniel was prophesying of, well, in its first iteration, was the coming of Antiochus IV. That horrific king during the intertestamental period, uh, we talked about this in our very first lesson this, this year uh, to kind of cover the, the time period between the Old and the New Testament when Alexander the Great had spread Greek influence and then he died and his, the empire was divided up between his generals. And among them was this horrific leader, a king later on uh, in the second century BC, Antiochus IV. And he set up an abomination in the sanctuary. When it says they'll pollute the sanctuary of strength, that's what he did. Sacrifice swine, an unclean animal, on the altar of sacrifice in the temple. Set up an image of Zeus, the Greek god, in the house of the god of Israel. I mean, this was horrible. This is where the Maccabees rise up and revolt. This is where Hanukkah comes in to rededicate a newly cleansed temple. Okay, this is, These are the things that Daniel saw in vision and prophesied of. But what the Lord is saying is it's going to happen all over again. Titus will come and tear down the temple stone by stone and wreak such havoc throughout Jerusalem that it will be desolation so complete that it will be abominable. And flip it around, abomination so intense that it will be desolating. 
That's what they're in for. You actually see similar language in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In the context of building a temple, in a chapter that talks about not only temple building, but second coming signs of the times, he says in section 88, verse 85, that their souls may escape the wrath of God, the desolation of abomination, which awaits the wicked, both in this world and in the world to come. How's that for reaping what you sow? How's that for getting what you give? You're not just going to suffer in this world, but in the next, you got desolation on both sides of the veil. But the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, let those that are not the first elders continue in the vineyard until the mouth of the Lord shall call them. For their time has not yet come, their garments are not clean from the blood of this generation. In other words, there's still more work to do. The desolation of abomination is on its way, but you're trying to help the world avoid it by crying repentance. That's actually what he said a few chapters earlier in section 84, verse 117. Speaking to those elders that were going forth to cry repentance, he says, "...reproving the world in righteousness of all their unrighteous and ungodly deeds." setting forth clearly and understandingly the desolation of abomination in the last days. And that is the destruction of the wicked. That's 35.8, the destruction that comes right before chapter 10 with the ye would not hen gathering chickens, and right before 11 with the coming of Christ. This is the missionary work that precedes the millennium. This is crying repentance to try to avoid Armageddon, and usher in Adam on Diamond instead. Again, amazing. Daniel looking back, looking back to Daniel, looking forward to the Doctrine and Covenants. Here's the Lord in this moment speaking of the abomination of desolations. And will we, will we be ready for it? He then says in verse 13, Then let them who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Remember he said that back in verse 12? If all this destruction is about to take place, you've got to stand in the holy place. If you read, do you understand? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Do you get it? Do you know what the holy place is? Now, do you see why section 88 would talk about the temple when it talks about the abomination of desolations? There's the holy place. That's where you've got to stand. In this verse, it's flee to the mountains. And that's what we're building everywhere we can. Even on flat ground. Mountains of the Lord. Close enough for saints around the earth to come running to seek sanctuary there. That's the wing of the hen. And we need more and more temples closer and closer to the saints. So flee to the mountains. He says, let him who is on the housetop flee and not return to take anything out of his house. Neither let him who is in the field return back to take his clothes. This is where we saw back in Luke chapter 12. Remember Lot's wife. And where did Lot and his surviving daughters flee to? To a mountain. Where did Noah and his family flee to an ark which floats above? They just built a mountaintop. <laughs> and when it finally came to rest, it rested on a mountain as well. We're building temples. We're coming to the mountains. We're finding holy places. It's actually interesting historically that where Jews were, there were also Christians because the first generation of Christians were all former Jews. And they're still living in Jerusalem. They're still living all throughout the Roman Empire. We'll see this in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul. Well, they, that means there were Christians around in 70 AD. And Christians in Jerusalem, when the Romans came, 
Josephus was focused on the destruction of the Jews and the 1.1 million Jews that were slaughtered. Where were the Christians in all of that? Great question. They must have remembered their Luke 12 and 17 and 19 and 21. They must have remembered their Matthew 24 and 25. They must have remembered the Olivet Discourse and the Lord's caution that when you start to hear the rumblings of the signs of the times and when the righteous are beginning to be persecuted and some are deceived and there's betrayal and hatred and get ready to flee to the mountain. Go stand in a holy place. It won't be the temple. That's going to be destroyed stone by stone. But head to the mountains, and they did. Oh, north of the, north of the Jordan River, there was a town called Pella. And it was to Pella that the Christians fled when the Roman destruction began to be underway. It's actually an amazing place to ponder that God does provide sanctuaries, places of refuge, coverts from storm and from rain. Come to my mountain and you'll be safe. During the self-inflicted destruction of the American Civil War, where fathers were killing sons and mothers were hating daughters and brothers were fighting brothers, where were the saints? Ah, in the mountains. They had fled and remained almost completely untouched by the Civil War, which as far as America was concerned was an, an, an abomination of desolations. Uh, mass destruction like the American people had never seen before, had never experienced. The saints were in Pella, a.k.a. Salt Lake City and their settlements of the West. It does make me think of where will we be during the wickedness, as the wickedness increases, as the love of man waxes cold, as iniquity abounds, will we be standing in holy places? Will we listen to prophets that tell us it's time to head to Pella? We've got to find a place of sanctuary. The Lord then says some interesting things in verse 16 and 17. Woe unto them that are with child, and unto them that give suck in those days. Therefore pray ye the Lord that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. And again, those are strange. What, it's not, it's not good to be pregnant? I mean, this is starting to sound like musical chairs, and I'm really nervous about when will the music stop, and when will you come, and will I be ready, or will I be left standing, and then have to leave? Can you imagine a pregnant woman trying to play musical chairs? That'd be harder. Not as spry as she normally would be. So what is he saying? The closer you get to the second coming, stop having kids. No. Sadly, the world is saying that, and people are falling for it. But the Lord is giving us an interesting caution. Literally, if it's time to pick up and move, it would be harder to do if you're nine months pregnant. It would still be harder to do if you're no longer pregnant, but your children are still nursing infants and it's just, that's a hard time to move. When we moved to Tennessee, we had three kids uh, that were really young. And our fourth had just been born like two weeks before. And so moving with a newborn is tricky. Well, imagine fleeing to Pella. Imagine trying to outpace the Roman army with a child in tow. Uh, 
or still in the womb. It, speaking symbolically, because again, I think most of these signs of the times have both a literal and a figurative dimension, and it behooves us to try to ponder both. Uh, on the spiritual side, the symbolic side, what would it mean to try to be ready for the second coming, but you are still with child or still giving suck? And one point, point to ponder here is, have you weaned your children yet spiritually? Can they stand on their own two feet spiritually? Do they have testimonies of their own? Or are you still laboring, trying to bring them forth so that they can live independently, spiritually speaking? Are they still totally dependent on you? Because if that's the case, second coming prep will be difficult. You'll be so focused on this child, you, do, you can't address the masses all around you. Uh, I'm not saying this is an every man for himself kind of thing. I'm not saying that. We're in this together. If you've been warned, warn your neighbor. But on the one on the other hand, when it comes down to it, you will be prepared or you won't be. There will be two grinding next to each other in the fields. One will choose to be good and the other will choose not to. There will be two women right beside each other. Which type of virgin, virgin will you be, wise or foolish? I hope this is making sense. I just wonder, am I doing enough to prepare my children to run alongside me instead of me trying desperately to pick them up and run for us both? You could say something similar for the winter and Sabbath idea. Have you ever had to move in the winter? It's, a, it's rough, even in our day. And Elders Quorum moves when it's snowing outside uh, or the rainy season. Uh, that's really hard. Ask the saints about heading out of Nauvoo in February. Ask the pioneers what it's like to try to flee to the mountains when you're leaving bloody footprints in the snow. Are there better times to go? Times, perhaps, if you're ready and waiting and the first hint that it's time to pick up and go, you're ready to do it. The U-Haul's already packed. I'm traveling light. I've, I've gotten rid of the worldly cares. My children are ready to, they've got their own suitcases packed and they can all move. This is not like home alone where the whole family is rushing to try to get to the airport. No, we can calmly all get up and move. It's not winter, okay? We, we chose to do this in the early spring. Or Sabbath. Oh, there's, I'd rather be able to enjoy my day of rest because I'm prepared for it rather than frantically trying to get ready to flee when that's not what this day was designed for. Okay? He then says in verse 18 and 19, For then in those days shall be great tribulation on the Jews. And upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, such as was not before sent upon Israel of God, since the beginning of their kingdom until this time, no, nor ever shall be sent again upon Israel. Now that's intense, considering all the Jews have gone through at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians and, and Greeks and Romans. Nothing like you've ever seen. Nothing like you'll ever see in the future. Wow. And yet, the Lord adds, all things which have befallen them are only the beginning of the sorrows which shall come upon them. Now that's a scary prophecy. 
that's only the beginning of the sorrows which shall come. In other words, even with all of that, worse than it's ever been, worse than it ever will be, that, that's just the beginning. You ain't seen nothing yet? Whoa, buckle up. I hope my heart doesn't faint because of this. And yet, in that phrase is also a beautiful note of hope. Because when he says, this is just the beginning of the sorrows that will come upon you, if you go back to the Matthew version of this, it does talk about the beginning of sorrows. But if you look at the Greek original of that, the word for sorrow is not the average ordinary, I'm having a bad day. I'm, kind of, I'm sad. Okay? Why so blue? No. It's a more intensified form of, the, uh, form of that emotion. The, the word for sorrow there means an acute pain, a, an agonizing suffering, to the point that that's the word they use for childbirth. When it talks about birth pains, that's the word it uses. And so when it says this is only the beginning of sorrows, what the Greek suggests is this is just the start of, of childbirth, which is brutal. I don't know it by personal experience, but I've seen my wife go through it five times. But it's, it's acute pain and intense agony with joy on the horizon. It's knowing I have to get through this to bring new life into the world. As Elder Packer used to say, every time a child is born, the world is renewed in innocence. And that's what the millennium is going to be. That's what the second coming will usher in. The world will be renewed in innocence. Life will come forth. Remember Jesus talked about that already? That a seed has to die in its seed form, that is, if it's ever going to grow into something bigger? That the mother will have to endure. This mother hen will have to endure intense agony. The beginning of sorrows. But hold out. Endure to the end. Be steadfast and don't be overcome. And what will you see when all is said and done? New life. A child has been born. So beautiful. Then notice this. Verse 20. This is Luke. Let's go to Luke for this. Okay? Luke 21, verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, which sounds like Babylonian destruction all over again and shall be led away captive into all nations, which sounds like the Assyrian captivity all over again. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, ah, that's the Roman destruction under Titus, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Hmm, until? And what will happen when the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled? Well, that's when the first shall be last and the last shall be first, when the gospel will return to the Jews. Oh, now we're talking restoration. That the restoration not only ends the apostasy, it ends the abomination of desolation. It ends the destruction that you saw in Babylonian time and Assyrian time and Roman time. It brings in the promise of peace. Hmm. Baby's on his way. Then back to Matthew, your Joseph Smith Matthew, look at verse 20. And this is one of the most haunting verses in the entire chapter. And except those days should be shortened, there should none of their flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, according to the covenant, those days shall be shortened. Now we're going to see the elect again. We're going to see the covenant again. But focus on what else was said. Thanks to the Lord's love of those who love him, <laughs> the elect who are chosen because they chose him, 
those who have made covenants with him, and he's keeping his covenant with them. Because of all that, he's going to shorten the days. And it's important that he does, because if they don't get shortened, then nobody's going to make it. There shall none of their flesh be saved. Whoa. That's how intense this is going to get? Yeah. Uh, Haven't you gotten a sense of that so far? These signs of the times? This escalation of evil? This abomination of desolation? And if we don't shorten the day, shorten the time, speed up the process, end it quickly. Like, can we get an epidural? Uh, Can we uh, speed things up so that the baby comes? Because only then will the pain be behind us. So how how do we initiate things? How do we accelerate things? How do we get the Lord to hasten his work in his time? Well, that's the thing. The Lord wants to. He wants to hasten his work. He wants to pick up speed. He wants to shorten those days. Because if he doesn't, nobody's going to make it. Now, maybe this analogy will help. Have you ever watched a sporting event where your team is ahead? That's the good news. But the other team has all the momentum and there's plenty of time left on the clock for them to come back and beat you. That's the bad news. You ever felt that way? Many of us who like certain teams, that seems to be what happens all season after season after season, game after game. And what do you want? What do you want, wish you could do? I joke with this with my students. Don't you wish you could kind of sneak over to the scoreboard and unplug it prematurely? Kind of snip the cord and go, oh, <laughs> sorry, I guess the game's over. Or like just massive power outage and go, well, well, I guess we can't. Or, you know, rain delay and the rain never stops. Just anything to stop the game. Because right now we're winning. But it's only a matter of time until the other team comes back and beats us. And I'm worried about that momentum. That's what the Lord is getting at. He sees the enemy with iniquity abounding and the love of man waxing cold and false Christ's. And false prophets deceiving many. We'll see more of these signs and times as they go. But it's getting harder and harder to live a righteous life. Don't you sense that? Was it easier for you as a teenager or easier for your children as teenagers now? How's the adversary doing as he strives to come roaring back, take the momentum and win the game? Aren't you tempted to just say, Lord, just come, please, come now. Hasten thy work, shorten shorten the, the days, and just end things. Please call for the paper. Mine's done. But I worry that I'm gonna that the dog's gonna eat it. Or I'm gonna lose it and and I won't be ready when you actually return. You see, this is where we get into that tricky language of Peter about delaying his coming and slackness versus long-suffering. It actually goes back to a really interesting contrary we've talked about several times about hastening the work versus, or hastening the work and shortening the day versus prolonging the days of probation for the children of men. Lehi talks about that in the Book of Mormon. And the irony here is, back to the Lord's long-suffering from Peter, why does he delay? Not because he's slack, because he's long-suffering, because he wants everyone to make it. And so by extending the the period, it's like, no, we're not going to turn in the papers today. We'll wait for another week or two. I'm still not going to give you the day nor the hour, but it's not this day or this hour. So you still have time to work on it. So please work on it. And what the Lord is hoping for by extending things 
There are still some of my favorite players and they're on the wrong team. And my hope is if I can just keep crying repentance, keep clucking in hopes that the chicks will come running, that those children of mine, those prodigals will come home. Maybe if I give them enough time, they'll come to themselves and they'll run across the field to rejoin the Savior's team. That's the good news. But the bad news? What about those on our team, but that are just barely holding on? What about those that are able to withstand the wickedness of this day, but might not be able to withstand the wickedness of tomorrow, since things seem to be getting worse? Do you sense that God is, himself is caught between a rock and a hard place? That the longer he waits, the more wicked might repent, but the longer he waits, the more righteous might become wicked? Please, my friends, we cannot afford to procrastinate the day of our repentance because that's just postponing. That's giving the adversary more time. And boy, does he have momentum. If we don't shorten those days, nobody's going to make it. That lets us know just what the future might hold if we don't hasten the work and allow the Lord to come, and come quickly. President Packer used to say that the distance between the world and a church not set on its course must steadily increase. You see, if we keep hold our standards, and we're above the world, but the world keeps getting worse, if, we're, if we hold to the Lord's standard and the world keeps losing its standards, then the distance between the church and the world will get bigger and bigger and bigger. You thought it was hard to be a peculiar people. Now we'll just wait. And this gradual normalization of aberration, as Elder Maxwell called it, it's going to become more and more of an intimidation to the righteous. We have to let the Lord come quickly. And so that means being prepared on our end and trying to prepare the world, allowing the Lord to hasten his work. I, like I said, I'm haunted by verse 20. And even though it comes before verse 21, and some people might say, oh, well, whew, whew, then glad that only applies to the Jews in 70 AD. And if, if, they, if you didn't flee to Pella in time, then yeah, no flesh is going to be saved. Glad we don't live in those days. Well, that's the thing. We do. Verse 21, and again, oh no, all those old signs are new signs and they still apply. No wonder so much talk in the Doctrine and Covenants about hastening the work. Now, get to verse 21, though, and here's the transition. Behold, those, these things I have spoken unto you concerning the Jews. So let's end the, your first question. And again, let's answer your second. With echoes from the first, that is. And again, after the tribulation of those days which shall come upon Jerusalem, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe him not. Doesn't that sound like an echo of what we just saw? The first sign in round one was false Christs. And the first sign of round two is false Christs all over again, pointing you in the wrong direction. And it's not just false Christs. Look at verse 22. For in those days there shall also be false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect, who are the elect according to the covenant. Now, where Matthew says deceive, Mark says seduce, which is interesting. It's going to be a seductive deception. 
And those are usually the most successful kind. The kinds that, I mean, they deceive us, they trick us, but they, they trick us by seducing us into thinking we're getting something better out of this. Now, this is counterfeit money, but oh, if somebody else falls for it, imagine what you can buy. And eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it'll all be well with us, and no problem. The seductive nature of deception is really fascinating. I'll also point out that deception, which has now been repeated four times, and falsehood, which keeps coming up in terms of false Christs and false prophets, that, to me, is the defining sign of the times. We usually talk more about, I've, I've asked my students this before in class, shut up for me some of the signs of the times. And they'll usually come up with kind of the cataclysmic ones first. They'll talk about earthquakes in diverse places. They'll talk about wars and rumors of wars. They'll talk about famine and pestilence and plague. And sure enough, those are all in there. Like, that's a good list. We'll see a lot of those today. But nobody seems to bring up the one that Jesus brought up more frequently than any other. And that's the deception of the elect according to the covenant. Well, if it's possible. Sadly, it's possible. And we see it happening all around us. We see the faithful, the elect, covenant makers now become covenant breakers because they've been deceived. Often deceived by the enemies of Israel, de deceived by the false Christs and false prophets out there but sometimes deceived by former brothers and sisters that have now betrayed them. It's, believe me, I spent a lot of time studying anti-Mormonism, and it is so slick and so sly. It is, well, so guilty of what I call the three S's. It's sensationalized, it's superficial, it's selective, but man, it's, we got out of fourth S, it's seductive. And as it seduces and deceives and convinces people, there's no reason to stay in the church and all the good stuff comes once you leave it. And sadly, we all seem to know people and love people who have fallen prey to that exact kind of deception. But they're the elect. I know, he said they would be. But they've made covenant. I know, they're elect according to the covenant. In fact, here's the interesting thing. In the King James Version of Matthew 24, we see the word deception or deceive quite often, but we see it even more in Joseph Smith Matthew in the JST. So deception is even, it's like it's going to be more deceptive than we even thought, okay? And Satan was trying to deceive us to avoid thinking that he was deceiving us. But the other phrase, and this one comes up so often in the inspired version and hardly ever comes up if it comes up at all, in the King James. How's this for numbers? The elect, is, it, the word elect is mentioned eight times in the inspired version in Joseph Smith Matthew. And covenant is mentioned twice. The elect according to the covenant. In, in Matthew 24, the King James version, the word elect only appears three times and the word covenant never shows up. So again, what is the Lord emphasizing by revelation? More deception than what met the eye. That's the, so the tactic will be deception. The target will be the elect. And it will be the elect according to the covenant. Satan will put his crosshairs on those who have made covenants with Christ. And if he can do anything to deceive them 
to come away from the safe shelter of those arms of safety. Come out into the open where I can fix my sights on you and take you down. That's what's happening in our day. And the Lord told us all of this in advance. He's trying to get us ready for it. I also find it interesting that those false Christs and false prophets would show great signs and wonders. And no wonder that's so deceptive. No wonder it's so seducing. Now, I want to preface with what I'm, what I'm about to say with the statement that I love science and technology. They have blessed my life. Uh, speaking of the pains of childbirth, yeah, epidurals are a great invention. My wife jokes that that's the compensation for having to live in the last days. It's like, yeah, we have to suffer through this kind of desolating abomination, but at least we don't have to feel childbirth as painfully as we otherwise would. Good call up. Now, I'll say this, though. There's a danger when science turns into scientism. And the ism there suggests that science becomes your new religion, your new way of viewing everything. Because science can be incredibly seductive. Technology can, too. Because think about it. Science has answered so many questions. That's what I love it for. We start to assume that someday it will answer them all. And that, my friends, is a false prophet. It, science can do so many amazing things, but it can't even direct itself. That's why you need ethics to, to be a conversation partner with science. Science can decide... Can, can do almost anything these days, but to decide whether or not it should do it? How should it limit itself? We're seeing those exact arguments now taking place over, over artificial intelligence and chatbots and so on. It's like, hmm, please slow down. The government's even saying, please slow down and let's figure out how to rein in the possibilities of what science and technology is learning to do. So if, sci- if we think that science can answer all questions because it's already answered so many, then technology is the idea that it will solve all problems since it's already solved so many. You understand what I'm getting at here? Our, my concern here is with false Christs and false prophets. And there, I'm sure there are many, many examples of that you could raise in terms of false means of deliverance and false forms of direction. But when it comes to signs and wonders, that to me is where science and technology really come forth. Because it's the signs they give and the wonders they show really are incredible. Just make sure they don't become your God. Because if you think that science will provide every direction and technology will provide every form of deliverance, then you've just latched onto a false prophet and a false Christ that ultimately will fall short of the kind of deliverance that can only come from the deliverer himself. Okay? Keep that in mind, especially all of us who are elect according to the covenant. Deception. It's so hard to to navigate because, because it's so deceptive. Okay? Next, go to verse 23. Behold, I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake. I mean, not only does the adversary have his crosshairs on you, but so does Christ. And he's looking at you and he chose you for good reason. You chose him, right? And so I'm trying to give you the heads up so you know what you're up against. 
He says, you shall also hear of wars and rumors of wars. And that's one of the more common signs of the times we're more used to. In fact, wars, we see it all over the place. Section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants prophesied it would be that way. But then rumors of wars, I've never heard a better description of terrorism. The, the, because a rumor, you don't know where it comes from and where it's going and how to solve it. And same with terrorism. Like, this is not your average, ordinary war. Post 9-11, we see more rumors of wars. And we're always on the lookout and on guard. Where will they be coming from? We hear things about the war on terror and the war on drugs and the war on poverty. There are rumors of wars everywhere. Welcome to the last days. These are the signs of the times. But then the Lord says this. Despite all of that, see that ye be not troubled. Luke's account is even more intense. See that ye be not terrified. Okay, well, whether you're just troubled or full-on terrified, don't be, the Lord says. And then these words of reassurance. For all I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then one more phrase of reassurance. Behold, I have told you before. Now let's tackle, tackle those two reassurances one by one. The first, oh, be not troubled. Be not terrified. Now obviously that is easier said than done. What, just stop being terrified? I live in a terrifying world. Just buck up and cheer up. Well, yeah, settle some things in your hearts. Be, remain steadfast. Endure to the end. It's going to be okay. Okay, uh, I, I want to believe that. Good, then do. And let that faith push out your fear. Because I'm here. In fact, I'm coming. That's the best news of all. In fact, it's amazing when you go to section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of many sections that really focuses on the second coming and the signs of the times. Notice the Lord says this, section 45, verse 34 and 35. And now when I, the Lord, had spoken these words unto my disciples, and these words were the same kinds of signs of the times we're studying here. In section 45, the Lord repeats a lot of them, and they're pretty brutal. And then it's like the Lord gets this interesting moment of deja vu. It's like he sees the blood draining out of Joseph's, uh, Joseph Smith's face, and he's like, whoa, okay, this is reminding me of the blood draining out of Peter's face and James and John's and Andrew's faces. So when he says, when I, the Lord, had spoken these words unto my disciples, and that's exactly what we're studying this week. This is the Olivet Discourse. When I told them that, they were troubled. And I said unto them, be not troubled. Okay. I love that section 45 is the Lord reminding us of what, he's, of what he went through in Matthew 24. It's really interesting. And he's like, ah, yep, they were, my, Peter, James, and John were troubled. Joseph and Sidney and Hiram, they were troubled. Everybody seems to be troubled whenever I talk about the signs of the times. And yeah, I've seen that in my students' faces as well. As well. Now, when the Lord says, be not troubled, he then gives them some advice on how to how to be able to follow that counsel. This is powerful. Be not troubled, for when all these things shall come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. And if that doesn't give us reassurance, I don't know what will. You see, here's what he's getting at. There's all kinds of negative signs of the times. The world will get worse. But you know, there's amazing positive signs of the times too kingdom will get better. That goes back to the great and dreadful day too. The worst will, the dreadful will get dreadfuler and the great will get greater. The wicked are getting worse, the righteous are getting better. There is a greater gap 
growing. The polarization between righteousness and wickedness, right? An entire separation of wheat and tares, wise and foolish, sheep and goats. All this is coming together for us, I hope. And when we see that, that polarization take place, where Satan has control over his own dominions and the Lord has power over his saints. That's the end of section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, the preface of second coming central scripture for our day. Okay, When we see that polarization and we recognize that oh, all those bad things are happening, then please know that all the good things are happening too. I had a student once and we were talking about signs of the times and the wickedness of the world at the second coming. They said, troubled themselves, and I could tell they were troubled. Why does the world have to get so bad before the second coming? This sweet sophomore girl, if I remember correctly. And there was fear in her voice. Why does the world have to get so wicked? And based on what I know from section 45 and Joseph Smith Matthew, I said to her, you know, that's a great question. And it's a, a troubling one, I'll admit. But you mind if I rephrase your question and ask it just slightly differently? Why do things have to get so good before the second coming? More missionaries than we've ever had. Temples dotting the earth in, way, in numbers that nobody thought possible. A better organized kingdom. I mean, here we are, come follow me. More people studying scripture on this planet than probably at any other time in its history. All because of you. It's amazing what you're doing. Oh, times are good. And they're going to get better. And that's what the Lord is asking us to focus on. When you see the negative things being fulfilled, don't be troubled. They're there to remind you that the positive promises will be fulfilled as well. That's the Lord's message to them in the ancient time. It's his message to us in the modern time. That's how Joseph Smith Matthew, Matthew 24, and DNC 45 have come together. And it's Jesus who was there for both times. I'd love that deja vu. They were troubled. You're troubled. I reassured them. Let me reassure you. And how do we do it? Focus on the positive. Focus on the promises. Because God always keeps his. His son is his word, after all. Okay? The other thing to, to say by way of reassurance is that last line. Behold, I have told you before. And I love that one. I do a lot of firesides on faith crisis, and I will often bring that up, because if deception of the very elect, according to the covenant, is the defining sign of the times, then no wonder the Lord wants, to know, uh, wants us to know about it in advance. No wonder he wants to warn us. Because one of the things that destabilizes faith most is watching other people's faith be destabilized. We, it's almost like these weird sympathy symptoms where we see other people losing their faith and it starts to, we start to worry about our own. It's like, what do they know that I don't know? And am I the one that's wrong? And it, my friends are leaving the church and why am I staying around? And it's hard. And yet if the Lord says, I tell you this before, so you'll know it's on its way and it won't catch you by surprise. We will see this in the next couple of weeks. Jesus say it twice in a different context. Similar language. Uh, preview of coming attractions. When he tells the apostles at the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me tonight. Wouldn't that shake your faith? Like, wait, one of us? Are you kidding? One of the 12 who knows you best? 
is going to turn on you and betray you? Well, yeah. If I prophesied that you'd betray one another later, I have to live it myself, and we're going to do it tonight. And then comes Judas. But then the Lord says this. He doesn't only say, one of you will betray me. He then says, and I tell you this beforehand so that you might believe. He talks, does it again when he talks about the crucifixion. I'm going to be crucified. And I tell you this beforehand. You see, nothing has the potential to shake your faith quite like a betraying apostle. Can you imagine the rest of the 11 going, did Judas know something we don't know? And like, or maybe even just the fact of the betrayal makes you second-guess Jesus. Because it's like, wait a minute, Jesus didn't even know this guy was a backstabber? If he's not a very good judge of character, could he really be the Christ? I don't know. Or crucifixion, to see your Messiah martyred. That's not how it's supposed to happen. You're supposed to free us from everything, and now you couldn't even free yourself? But think about it. Knowing that two things were about to take place that potentially would shake their faith, what does Jesus say? He tells them if those things are going to happen. And he tells them he's telling them they're going to happen. See, Jesus prophesied a lot, but seldom did he call attention to the fact so boldly, so clearly, that he was prophesying. Let me tell you something that's about to happen. And I'm telling you before it happens. Why? So that when it happens, you know I saw it coming. Because think about it. If that's in the back of your mind, when it happens, instead of it shaking your faith, it actually confirms your faith. You're like, whoa. Instead of thinking, how could Jesus not see this coming? You're like, Jesus totally saw this coming. And he called it out. That's amazing. He knew. He really is the Messiah. Now think about it again here in terms of faith crisis. And seeing the elect according to the covenant all around you being deceived, seduced, drawn away. But the Lord told us this before. And so that becomes fulfillment of prophecy. Confirmation of faith rather than an attack on it. You get it? I... You know this. I work with people in faith crisis all the time. And when I see it happen, my heart breaks for them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's arms of mercy here for you. Come back. But on the logical side of me, I also know, yep, this is right on time. Exactly as the Lord said it would be. He told us this before. There's other examples of that in Scripture, but... Let that be sufficient for now. Please know that we're in, we're in the last days. And the deception of the elect is what the Lord saw coming. Now, he goes on and says in verse 25, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Or if they say, Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's the Matthew equivalent of what we saw earlier in Luke about the lightning flash. For Luke, the lightning flashes and the whole sky lights up. In Matthew, the sun rises. The light of the morning cometh out of the east. 
Well, does that mean only the Easterners will know that it's sunrise? Well, no, they might see it first because they're closer to the action, but the sun keeps on rising, the earth keeps on rotating, and pretty soon it's broad daylight and everybody knows. And that's the point he's making here. There will be no mistaking the second coming. We're not going to wander around like, I don't, did it happen? I don't, did I miss something? No, we'll all know. And because of that, beware of those that say things like, oh, he's out here in the desert, come out to us. Or he's over here in the secret chamber, come over in our direction. That's the those who say the low here and the low there. And that's just more deception of the elect. It's interesting because I've said this to people, especially that have joined certain fringe groups within the church that are now outside the church, but they claim to be prophets, speaking of false prophets, uh, whether or not they use the title, but it's like, oh, those old men in Salt Lake City have led us astray, or they're settling for a lowest common denominator discipleship. We are better than that. And so let's Let's go get our calling and election made sure. And let's go have visions and, and prophecies. And, and let's get past. The brethren are slowing us down. So let's speed up and just, we can, we can outpace the rest of the group. We'll show them how it's done. It'll all be for the good. Oh, talk about seduction and deception and playing to your strengths instead of playing to your weakness. Playing to your pride and your faithfulness and your goodness. I've often said most people who leave the church leave because they don't believe enough. But some people leave the church because they believe too much. And those fringe groups are the ones I'm thinking of. Especially those who say, low here and low there. I'll show you Jesus. I know where he's at. We're better prepared for his coming than anybody. We will probably know the day and the hour before anybody else in Salt Lake does. Specifically, come to the desert. Come to the secret place. That's interesting language because in early Christianity, there were a group called the Desert Fathers. These were extreme asceticists. Uh, asceticism is, I mean, absolute. I mean, it's like the rich young ruler, but put it on steroids. And we're going to sign off everything, include, including any private property. Uh, we're going to go live in the desert uh, and live on practically nothing. And they became kind of famous as these ultimate ultra-disciples. I mean, there's runners, and then there's marathoners, and then there's ultra-marathoners. And it's like, whoa, there's disciples, and then there's consecrators, and then there's like ascetics and desert fathers. And so that's what we got to do. And does that sound like overzealousness to you? I think there's a concern there of this is, you have to go to this extreme or you'll never find Jesus. That's what I was saying at the beginning of this week's lesson about my concern about the zealous becoming overzealous when, we, when people pump them up too much about the second coming or pump them up too much about, well, get your calling and election made sure and, and we're going to outpace the prophets and careful about those that are trying to, to, to seduce you to come out into the desert because it's a deceptive desert out there. And then the other one with this secret chambers, again in the early church, it wasn't just ascetics that were pulling people. It was also Gnostics. This is G-N-O-S-T. And the Gnostics comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And the Gnostics felt that there was some like hidden knowledge that only the elect would be privy to. Kind of these esoteric mysteries of the kingdom. And wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
Now you can see where they get some of it. You know, the Lord said, those that have ears to hear, let him hear. But these people took that to the extreme. Okay, and that's the challenge here is people taking good things to the extreme, working towards our strengths until our strengths become our downfall, as Elder Oaks once said. You, you still with me? What I see in the Gnostics, again, goes back to some of these fringe groups where it's like we have certain knowledge that nobody else does. Which smacks of such elitism that, if nothing else, that should alert us that something's amiss. Because the Lord wanted the least of these to make it. He wanted us to stick together in one heart and one mind. Zion requires some of the slow to pick up speed, but some of the fast to slow down and help. Okay, We're all in this thing together, the body of Christ. We're gathering together. Eagles and carcasses and all. <laughs> Hens and chicks, you name it. We all need to come. But beware of those in our day. That's another sign of the time that tends to deceive the very elect. There are those that come at you and fight you and just try to deceive uh, with sensationalism and superficiality and selectiveness. But there are others that try to deceive you with just smooth talk of deserts and secret places and higher standards. And we've got the secrets. We've got the mysteries. Yeah, those are false prophets too. So beware. Then, verse 27, Now I show unto you a parable. And this will be familiar from our experience in Luke. Behold, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And then he clarifies, So likewise shall mine elect be gathered from the four quarters of the earth. And no wonder President Nelson talks about the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil so frequently. That's one of the glorious signs of the times. That's what we should be doing. That's actually one of the ways to avoid the deception that's all around us. We're too busy in the real work to get caught up in counterfeits. The Lord goes on, they shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, just like we saw before. Behold, I speak for mine elect's sake. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Luke adds, and fearful sights and great signs. And like I said before, these should be taken literally as well as symbolically. Are there wars and rumors of wars? Yes. But is it, are there also spiritual battles that are raging all around us? The need to put on the armor of God? When we think of famine... Yes, that happens literally, but figuratively, are there still famines in the land for the word of God? And self, sadly, in our day, a lot of that is self-starvation. It's all around us. Just, here's some fruit, eat it. What about pestilence? And we just got through a pandemic. But what about spiritual sicknesses that seem to be sapping spiritual strength? There's so many examples of these kinds of things taking place all around us. Earthquakes in diverse places, you better believe it. And to me, the most visible ones are the shaking of faith that I see all around me. That's why I call this channel Unshaken. That's my hope, to steady people. Even knowing that the shaking was prophesied and promised long before. We're living through the middle of it all. And based on the context of what the Lord is saying here, 
all the more reason for the gathering. We need each other. Want to keep from falling? Then grab a few other people. <laughs> and we've just extended the center of gravity and, and some stability here. Go out and gather Israel. And you'll find your hunger and thirst swallowed up as you keep providing the bread of life and the living water for other people. No pestilence here. You're spiritually strong. In verse 30, he then says, Again, because iniquity shall abound, the love of men shall wax cold. Are we seeing the repetition of the signs from the first, now as signs of the second? Again, and again, is what he said. But, he says, he that shall not be overcome, the same shall be saved. So again, reiterating, our need for valiance, for faithfulness, not to be overcome. And again, he continues, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, or the destruction of the wicked. This is our chance to give the wicked one last warning. Overcome, so that you are not overcome. Overcome sin, overcome selfishness, overcome self, overcome the wicked world. Flee to the mountain. That's where we're headed. In fact, that's what we're building, practically next door. We're gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. We're preparing the earth for the coming of our king. This is what we're involved in. This is our work, and sweet is the work. Fully engaged in it, we will not be overcome. And we better be ready because of all that's coming. Verse 32, again shall the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet be fulfilled. So that first one was a preview of the second one. Antiochus IV was a preview of Titus. Titus is a preview of Armageddon. These abominable desolations, these desolating abominations, they will come. And then the Lord says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. No wonder the need to become unshaken ourselves. General darkness seems fitting if you've rejected the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. That's what we're up against. Falling stars, that seems appropriate for our day also, because we have elevated mere mortals to star status. How's that for a false prophet? Thinking that that's the direction we should follow. Now, in the ancient days, they would follow the stars, right? That's your compass in the cosmos. And by seeing those stars, I know exactly, I know exactly where to go. You can still do that today, as long as the North Star stays north, right? There needs to be a fixed polar star, an absolute truth. And then I can get my bearings from that. But imagine if the stars by which you navigated were falling, moving targets, <laughs> and north is no longer north. Good is now evil, and evil is now good, and north is south, and east is west, and it's a mess now. No wonder we are lost in a world of darkness when there are no stars. Heaven itself is shaking. What hope do we have? No wonder in the Luke version of all this we're told, there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. That's such a fascinating phrase. 
distress with perplexity. We're so confused about what's going on. We're not sure who to trust or what to believe or where to go. We are perplexed as well as troubled. The sea and the waves roaring. Remember, the sea is, an, is a symbol of chaos. And so are we returning to chaos? I mean, it's not just global warming and the rising sea levels. It's like the earth, solid gospel ground, is now starting to sink into a sea of shifting values and cultural currents. And we don't know what's solid anymore. No wonder the next line, men's hearts failing them for fear. There has been such an incredible increase in anxiety among people in our day. There's men's hearts failing them for fear. Why? Because there's no star to, to navigate by. There's no light to illuminate. There's nothing firm to hold on to. So no wonder there's fear. Fear for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Every time I read or reread the signs of the times in Matthew or Mark or Luke, in Joseph Smith Matthew, all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, those final books leading up to 3 Nephi 11, we have so many rich resources to help us learn. But to see the need for us to develop unshaken faith in Christ, for us to get our feet beneath us, firmly rooted in gospel ground, to dig deep and build a foundation upon the rock of the Redeemer, all of this is increasingly needed in these last days. Back in Joseph Smith Matthew, look at verse 34. And he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation, in which these things shall be shown forth, and that's our generation, we're seeing these things shown forth. It's our children's generation. It'll probably be our grandchildren's generation. Things keep getting worse before they'll get better. But in each of these generations, when these things shall be shown forth, they shall not pass away until all I have told you shall be fulfilled. Every jot, every tittle, we can bank on this. He says, although the days will come that heaven and earth shall pass away, yet my words shall not pass away, but all shall be fulfilled. A promise he repeats in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, <laughs> setting the stage for this final dispensation. That phrase, by the way, is not just hyperbole. Though the heavens and earth shall pass away, it's like, oh, talk about impossibilities. Then if that could never happen, then certainly God's word could never pass away. No, he's actually saying those other things will pass away. But why? To make way for a new heaven and new earth. We're clearing the temple mount for a new temple. We are cleansing the earth so it can receive its paradisical glory. So plan for that. He then says in verse 36, As I said before, after the tribulation of those days, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We'll see more of that when we get to the book of Revelation. To see Christ Descend. We see this in section 133 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is the appendix. So much of what we've seen today is, is, is reflected on in section 1, the preface. A lot is repeated in section 133, the appendix. The, the bookends of the Doctrine and Covenants. Encapsulating everything within in second coming context. It's really amazing.
I love the Doctrine and Covenants for that. But to see the coming of the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man himself. And Jesus appears. We believe in the, the, that he will reign personally upon the earth. And here he comes. It seems so fitting that amidst all the wars and rumors of wars, here comes the Prince of Peace. Amidst the general darkness with no sun or moon or stars, here comes the light of the world. Amidst, amidst the famine in the land, here comes the bread of life and the living water. Men's hearts failing them, here comes Jesus with a new heart to give to each of us. Oh, to be here for that sign. There's something about the way he puts it, the sign of the Son of Man. And it's him. What's your favorite sign of the time? Jesus. That more and more people are focusing on him. That we're trying to put him front and center in all that we do. When he comes. I love what Elder Maxwell once joked about. What an irony that the so-called post-Christian era, how's that for our secular age? The so-called post-Christian era will come to an end with the coming of Christ. Yeah, you can't really be post-Christian when he's here. Right. And then verse 37, which is one of the greatest verses in the entire chapter. Because it talks about deception again, but this time not warning you against it but telling you how to prepare for it. This is the solution. We've seen signs of the times and problems and troubles and terrifying things left and right. We've also seen all kinds of advice and counsel. It's good to kind of identify those and mark them off and to see, okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm not being overcome and I'm enduring to the end and I'm standing steadfast and, and, and I'm, I'm preaching the gospel and I'm doing all these things. But here's one of the ultimate ones. In the face of the defining sign of the times, which is the deception of the elect according to the covenant. Joseph Smith, Matthew, verse 37, And whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. There you have it. For the Son of Man shall come, and he shall send his angels before him with the great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together the remainder of his elect from the four winds. There's these eagles coming swooping in from one end of heaven to the other. That, that's it. This is, this is the, the ultimate answer here. In the midst of all of this gathering and the trumpet blasts that you hear in section 88 and in the book of Revelation, how do you overcome the deception that's trying to keep us from that great and glorious day? You treasure up the word. That's it. Notice he didn't say you skim your scriptures. He used a much more powerful verb. You treasure them up, which suggests your attitude, your motive, your perception of what it is that you're studying. It's such a great verse. The better you know the sound of, the vo of God's voice, the better you'll hear just the false notes whenever Satan comes to speak. And this is Moses chapter 1, right? He's, Moses has just had an experience with God. And when Satan comes to tempt him, <laughs> Moses can basically laugh in his face and say, I was just with God. Where's your glory? I can look upon you with a natural man. I had to be transfigured for him. For you, I don't even need sunglasses. So no, I'm not interested. I've heard it said that people who are experts at identifying counterfeits 
don't spend their lives studying the counterfeits. They spend their lives studying the real thing. Because the better I know things as they really are, the more obvious any, any fake, anything deceptive, anything seductive, anything counterfeit, it becomes crystal clear. And so no wonder our need to treasure up the words of life. With that word, that's the sword of the Spirit, the word and the Spirit, and it cuts straight through the fog of, of confusion, of deception, of seduction. You will not be deceived if you know God's word. And I know I'm speaking to the choir. Here, here we are trying to treasure it up together. Now, verse 38 and 39 We'll remember this from other things that Jesus has taught elsewhere. And even uh, an amazing act he's just performed the day before. Verse 38, now learn a parable of the fig tree. Remember there was one that was recently withered for its hypocrisy. But let's learn a lesson from this particular tree. When its branches are yet tender and it begins to put forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh at hand. So likewise, mine elect, when they shall see all these things, they shall know that he is near, even at the doors. Will we be able to read the signs of the times? Will we recognize the leaves when they start forming? Will we see if there's fruit beneath it? And by the fruit, we shall know what time it is. Again, we don't know a specific day or hour here, but we are getting a general sense of the season and when it's summertime and harvest has ended, the work has been done, are, are we ready? Are we paying close enough attention to see the leaves when they form? In verse 40, he clarifies, of that day and hour, no one knoweth. That's why I'm just talking about growing seasons rather than, and when the fourth leaf appears, then check your clock and this is the exact moment. No, we're not doing math here. We're just trying to be generally prepared. So, day, hour, no one knows. No, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. That's the Matthew version. The Mark version includes the phrase, neither the Son, which is interesting. It's like, whoa, so no man knows the day nor the hour. The angels don't know it. The Son of God doesn't know it. Only the Father. Wow, this really is select audience of who gets in on the info. Well, check your JST. And the JST just crosses out the phrase, neither the sun. So it leaves it with, men and women don't know, the angels don't know. But the son and the father, oh yeah, they know. They know the signs of the times. They know how much time will be required to hasten their work. They know just, they, they prove the contrary perfectly of prolonging our days to give us a chance to repent. And shortening our days so there's a chance to repent at all, okay? Or a desire to repent at all. So we'll leave that to him. In some ways, what I love about this, and this is, this is something that we see so often whenever the second coming is discussed or taught in scripture, this idea of nobody knows exactly when. That's why William Miller got ahead of himself when he put a, a finger down on a calendar and said, this is when he's gonna come. That's why I worry about some of those videos that seem a little overzealous because they're over clear. Okay? Now, day and hour is not the same as season. It's interesting that in our day, even when a child is born, when you really think about it, no one knows the day nor the hour. 
It's about nine months, and when exactly did conception occur? Well, we're going to think it's about here, but there's always there's some wiggle room, and some babies come a little early, and some come a little late. Even when you have an induction date, oh, we know the day. Well, okay, you think you do. Do you know the hour? Even that, no. Might come fast, might come slow. But here, there is this interesting balance. This is another contrary of the second coming. We've seen post and premillennialism. How about justice and mercy in terms of how much the Lord wants us to know about the timetable? Because on the one hand, when he says, no one knows the day or the hour, and remember Elder Ballard, if we don't know, nobody knows, that's justice. Because that's the pop quiz. That's the, I'm not going to give you the due date on the assignment. You just have to be ever ready, always prepared, ready and watching so that the thief doesn't come break through your house. Okay? My justice requires that I see the real you. Are you working or water skiing? Are you toilet papering or <laughs> prepared to tell the toilet paperers to clean, clean the mess up? That's, that side is God's justice. The mercy side is the Lord giving us signs of the times at all. Because he didn't have to. He could have just said, no man knows the day nor the hour, so you better get ready and I'm coming whenever. And you're like, ah. Oh. But with his mercy, I at least want to clue you in when we're getting close. I can't tell you where the Easter egg is hidden, but I can tell you warmer, warmer, colder, colder. And that's what these signs are for. There's something beautiful about just these subtle hints that he drops to let us know that the promises are being fulfilled. And those signs should be our reminder. Okay? It's a perfect balance, and God knows just how, how well to strike it. Now, from there, our study of Matthew 24, or Joseph Smith Matthew, is essentially over because the rest of this chapter basically reiterates things that Jesus has already taught us in the book of Luke that we saw in chapter 12 and chapter 17 in the first half of our lesson. By way of just quick run-through, verse 41 to the very end is things we're familiar with now. But 41 to 43, he talks about the days of Noah. It's going to be just like it. They'll be going through the motions and not aware that the storm clouds are gathering. In verse 44 to 45, it's the in every pair, one will be taken and the other left. We already talked about that. Not just a 50-50, but rather you got two options and which way will you go? Verse 46 is worth reading here. What I say unto one, I say unto all men. So this applies across the board. We all need to be ready for this. And what's the counsel he gives us all? Watch. Watch, therefore, for you know not at what hour your Lord doth come. The Mark version of that adds another verb. Not just watch, but take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. That's beautiful. So it's not just that we're watching. It's that we're watching and we're praying to God that we might be prepared. Also in the Mark version, he adds this. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. So like we saw with the possibility of first watch, second watch, third watch. Oh, he's already come. He comes all the time. That clarifies it once again. Even, midnight, cock crow, morning. Wow, we automatically assume eh, it's the 11th hour. So it's always midnight that he comes. Well, you never know. Back to the end of Matthew 24, we see in verse 47, the re repetition of that, uh, if you knew when the thief was coming, you wouldn't suffer your house to be broken in. 
Then verse 48, this one's worth reading. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. So watching, waiting, ready. And then verse 49 and 50. Faithful servants are made rulers over all that the Lord has. 51 to 54. Unfaithful servants are the ones who say the Lord delays his coming. Uh, there it has that for slackers, <laughs> accusing God of slackness. So again, the things that we studied in our first half of our lesson in Luke are all brought back here in, in Matthew. And then Matthew ends the, this part of the sermon. Verse 55, And thus cometh the end of the wicked, according to the prophecy of Moses, saying, They shall be cut off from among the people. But the end of the earth is not yet, but by and by. So even then, we're not quite there yet. I mean, the game is winding down. The final whistle is almost ready to be blown but you're not quite there yet. So keep listening to men like Moses. Keep working and waiting and preparing. Keep your lights on. Keep your loins girded about. Keep serving. You're almost there. Oh, with that, I just... Oh, can we just finish? Can we just get over the hump? Satan bound. Children growing up without sin unto salvation. The earth receiving its paracycle glory. Man, good times ahead. Hasten the day. We do see a couple other final details in the Luke account of all of this. Before we go on to Matthew 25, let's just hit a few highlights at the end of Luke 21. Verse 34 to 36. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged and the Greek there means weighed down or burdened. How's that for that? Those heavy burdens we sometimes feel when we're, when we're troubled, when we're terrified. We're overcharged. But here he says overcharged with surfeiting, which means carousing or dissipation. The Greek actually basically means a hangover. You don't want your heart to be overcharged with some kind of hangover. It explains the next phrase. And drunkenness and cares of this life. Man, all these worldly anxieties, all this, these issues that we deal with, this, this human hangover, so to speak, where we're just oh, so concerned about stuff instead of putting our eggs in heaven's basket. He warns us about that. Take heed. Don't let it happen. Because if you do, notice the rest of the verse. That day will come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye, therefore. And pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's beautiful. I need to be careful, take heed to myself. I've got to kind of keep an eye on my internal temperature. Is my heart overcharging? Am I too... Too hot? Too cold? Am I in the Goldilocks zone? Am I preparing myself well? Because if I am, no fear, no trouble. I will be worthy to escape so many of these negative signs of the times. Instead, I'll be basking in the glorious positive ones. Like, last days? Oh, those were the best days ever. And not just worthy to escape, but worthy to stand. Stand to see the greatest sign of them all, the sign of the Son of Man himself. 
Luke then ends in 37 and 38. And in the daytime, he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple. And at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Now, as we've wrestled with this so many times, it's hard to nail down the chronology between Matthew's version and Mark's and Luke's and John's. <laughs> Don't worry too much about that. Is this the end of Tuesday? Did this, some of this conversation take place in the temple? Did some of it happen, did the rest of it happen on the Mount of Olives? Is it Tuesday night? Did some of this happen Wednesday morning? Did you go from temple to mount and then back to the temple? Hard to say. Maybe we don't need to worry so much about the where and the when and focus instead, as is so often the case, on the what and the why and most of all the who. Do I know Christ? Am I ready for him? Because that's the message of Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is a trio of teachings, uh, three parables that Jesus will teach. We keep seeing things come in threes, right? The three parables of the lost, the three parables of the losers, or the lost out, uh, the three trick questions that they try to set traps for Jesus. Well, here we're going to see three parables to put in perspective what we just studied with the Olivet Discourse and the Signs of the Times and Second Coming and am I ready and waiting and watching and working and prepared for all of this? Is my, are my loins girt about? Is my light brightly burning? Because if not, then I'm not ready. And the three parables that we'll see in this chapter and that we'll end our lesson on this week are the, parables, uh, the parable of the ten virgins, so famous, the parable of the talents, also well known, and the parable of the sheep and goats, which we don't often realize that there's a parable here, but we know some of what he teaches within it. So hold out to, for that. Okay, Let's start with the first. Chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 1 through 4, famous, famous story. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. Now, we already skipped something, because the JST adds a phrase, Then, at that day, before the Son of Man comes, shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. So yeah, we're really focused. We're still on the same subject. We're still focused on the coming of the Son of Man. And in that context, let's talk about ten virgins. The fact they're virgins suggests that they're all pure, they're all worthy, they're all the perfect kinds of people to be invited to a wedding feast. And sure enough, they want to go. They took their lamps, they went forth to meet the bridegroom. I mean, they're so ready and waiting, they're so anxious that they're not just waiting for him to come to them, they're going out to meet him. That's good. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. So now we're back to that 50%, one is taken and one is left. Or again, as we were discussing, we have two options here. Which group do I want to be a part of? However big or small they happen to be. Now, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So notice they've got two things. They've got an oil lamp full of oil and a vessel so that they can keep replenishing the supply in their lamp. Now what's interesting about this, and we're all fairly well familiar with this, these are church members we're talking about, the virgins after all. These are people who knew about the wedding, wanted to be there, felt prepared to go. I mean, zealous enough to run out and want to meet him. Oh, he's not there yet? That's okay, we can wait. We're just so excited that he's coming. 
These are true disciples. These are good people. The question is, how, how prepared are you? It goes back to the widow's might. It's not just how much, but it's how. How are you preparing? Do you think you have sufficient or have you underestimated just how much spiritual strength will be required of you? I was just up in Idaho uh, speaking at a fireside with some amazing saints. Just got to know some incredible disciples of Christ. And one amazing couple that are now close friends of mine uh, gave me a beautiful gift of an olive lamp. And I love their inscription on the back, thanks for the oil. And in the card that accompanied it, they, they clarified that they knew better, that they knew I wasn't giving oil, I can't. But prompting in them a desire to deepen their understanding and feast upon the words, to treasure up the words of life to the point that they would have more than enough oil to make it through the last days. Now, if you look at this oil lamp and see how small it is, think how long the light would burn before it burns out, before the oil has been consumed. Now, if I assume that he's coming quickly, then this is probably plenty. And I, I mean, I'm going out to meet him and he's going to come and we're on our way. I'm good. I'm, I'm ready for this. But my worry is, do we underestimate? Do we overestimate our own strength and underestimate what we're up against? I mean, no wonder he prefaces this parable with that incredible discourse, letting us know just how hard the last days will be, just how dark the night will come, become before the sun rises. My concern here is, are we content with oh, spiritual half measures? Are we feeling like, oh, I've done enough. I know the scriptures. I've read them a few times. Uh, I have a temple recommend. I serve in my calling. I'm a wise virgin. You are. All 10 of them were wise to start. All 10 of them came with, with lamps and oil. The difference is those that were wise enough to be prepared for the long term. And I'm just going to keep on preparing. I'm not going to stagnate where I am. Because I don't know how oil works. Does oil evaporate? Uh, I don't know. Does it, does it lose some of its potency with time? I know batteries tend to. <laughs> so I, I got a full battery. Well, it was full when you started. Is it still going to be full enough to, make you, to get you through the dark night? Or will that flashlight give up? I just worry that sometimes we, we, put our, we earn our wages to put it into a bag with holes. That we put it into bags that wax old that we go through the motions, or we think that old spirituality will carry us through. And I had some amazing experiences on my mission, and that's good enough for me. No, we need to continually add to our vessels, because you never know just how long it will take before the Savior comes. Now, in verse 5 through 8, the story continues. While the bridegroom tarried, hmm, he's tarrying? What's taking him so long? Let's get going. Aren't you trying to hasten the work and shorten the day? Well, yes, I am. But I'm also delaying somewhat 
because of my long suffering. I'm trying to let the wicked repent. There are some people that, if just if they had a little more time, I'm sure they would get they dust off their oil lamps, and press some oil and come running. Maybe it's Jesus with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I'm tarrying for your sakes, and some divine restraint allowing you to grow up in God. Well, whatever the reason, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. All ten of them, the wise as well as the foolish. Everyone's guilty of that. We all slumber and sleep. It's part of being human, merely mortal. But here's where, here's where push comes to shove. At midnight, so the moment of greatest darkness, the moment when you need the most light, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Oh, we already did that, didn't we? Didn't we do that before? He didn't come. Ah, do we? Is this the boy who cried wolf? Is the servant who cried bridegroom? Oh no, they know he's coming. All the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Oh, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. You see, they were lit before. They, like I said, they were all wise to begin with. They still wanted to be there. Just wonder if they assumed like, well, I'm here. That's close enough, right? And the Lord in his mercy can definitely just kind of, oh, I know your light's out, but you, you had one before. Come on in. It's fine. Oh, just like I was warning us about overestimating uh, our own strength or underestimating how long we might have to prepare. Don't overestimate the Lord's mercy and underestimate the Lord's justice. Don't do the, the opposite either. Okay? We need to understand the perfect balance he strikes with all of us. But in this case, the thought of, oh, you're good people and we're good people and we're all virgins together. And we all want to go to the wedding. So oh, surely you'll get me in, right? You can bail me out. Yeah, you can give me some of your oil. But the problem is you just, you can't. And it's not because you don't want to, believe me. I wish I could take my heart out of my chest and put it in people that I care about that are struggling. I wish I could take a lifetime of scripture study and just squeeze it out all over them and hope that it sinks into their soul. That's part of what I'm doing as we speak. But I can't take my oil there's only one vessel where it's contained and that's in my own heart my own soul and you can't pour that out you can talk about your oil you can share how glorious it is to you and how grateful you are for it and how you gathered it and pressed it and but at the end of the day they're going to have to go be wise servants themselves they're going to have to press some oil they're going to have to spend some time in gethsemane the olive press and keep filling their own vessels. And that's the point the wise virgins make in verse 9. The wise answered saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. There are other places and other opportunities for you to develop your own spiritual strength. The question will be, do you have time to do it? Or have you been procrastinating the day of your repentance? This is the parable of the sower with these plants that had roots, but not in themselves. Can I just tap off, kind of leech off your, your taproot? 
Compare that to Joseph Smith when he comes back from the sacred grove to his mother. I have learned for myself. And that's the phrase we all need to be able to repeat. I've got my own oil, and I know where to get more of it. In verse 10 through 13, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And isn't that the ultimate irony? Again, they, they were ready at one point. They're just not ready right now. They had oil. If you'd only come earlier in my life, I was good then. It's to, I'm struggling now. Well, that's why we need to be ever ready. But now the bridegroom's come. Now they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Sound like Noah, now on the ark. And the door has to be shut or the water will come in. The, the, the city gates of Sodom basically have to be closed because that's where the fire and brimstone will fall. The door is shut. Now afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Does it sound like what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount about there will be many of those that say, Lord, Lord, but that's all you've got is lip service? Where is the action behind it? Where's the attitude behind it? Where's the faith and testimony and personal relationship? Because that's what he's after. These foolish virgins will say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But then the Lord answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. And the JST reverses it. Ye know me not. That also is like the earlier one. There's no relationship here. There's no knowing each other. In fact, in this case, if you thought I would come when it was most convenient to you, then yeah, you don't really know me. And if you thought I would just let you in on cheap grace and no expectation, then no, you don't know me then either. I love you more than that. I love you enough to balance justice and mercy. I love you enough to make, to have great expectations for you. I love you enough to try to prepare you to say yes, but also love you enough to say no when the time has passed. Justice and mercy is perfectly balanced here. We, we have to trust God in that. But the best way to do any of this is to come to know him personally. That's oil production for you. Now, in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which we've already alluded to and read from, there's another passage there that ties the second coming back into the parable of the ten virgins. Section 45, verse 56 and verse 57 says that at that day, and that's the latter day, that's the second coming day, the harvest day, when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise, and then here, here's a beautiful description of what makes them wise, the evidence of that wisdom, and have received the truth, and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide, and have not been deceived. Hmm. Does that word mean something to us now after our study of Matthew 24? They have not been deceived. Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. That is what separates the foolish from the wise. That's how you can tell. By their fruits ye shall know them. Oh, forget the fig tree. This was, these were olive trees we were dealing with. And behind those leaves, yes, there was fruit. And that fruit was gathered and it was pressed under an infinite weight. Oil was produced. That oil was gathered. 
And it's through that oil that our light can shine before men. These wise vir virgins have done what? They've taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. Oh, there's no false prophet, no false Christ there. They have not been deceived. Ah, sounds like they treasured up the word of life. And death was not staring them in the face. These are the things that separate. And which side will we be on? Now that is the parable of the ten virgins. And right on its heels, the Lord teaches the parable of the talents. So keep the same, keep, keep all these stories in mind. Keep it in the second coming context and shift gears somewhat. Okay? No longer foolish and wise virgins coming to a wedding feast. Well, it's kind of like we went, remember when we went from the parable of the laborers or the wicked husbandmen to the parable of the marriage of the king's son? Well, now we're going to reverse back out. And we're going to start with a parable about a marriage, and then we'll go back out to a parable of a bunch of workers, okay, stewards, husbandmen. Uh, in this one, we are going to see, starting in verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. Now, pause here for a second, because Luke earlier taught a parable called the parable of the pounds. This is Luke chapter 19. And the parable of the pounds is the closest thing we have in Luke to Matthew's parable of the talents. Okay, So let's kind of uh, cross-pollinate these two and see some details from, from both. One thing that Luke gives us that Matthew did not is some extra context. Luke 19.11 says that this parable, the parable of the pounds, was taught because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And again, speaking of second coming context and how long, how much oil do I need? Because surely the Lord's going to come pretty quickly before I run out, right? Eh, maybe not. <laughs> you might be in here for the long haul. And so the pounds and by analogy, the talents, keep it in mind. This is really a really good lesson for people who think that Jesus is right around the corner. And maybe it's on the too hot side, and they're overzealous and underpatient, and in their patience they won't possess their souls because they don't have any patience to possess, possess it with. And I just want to go right now. Okay, he's, he's coming any second. Okay, keep that in mind then as we study these two parables together. I already read verse 14 of Matthew 25. Okay, but here's it is again. This kingdom of heaven is the man traveling into a far country. Luke calls him a nobleman and says he's going into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Uh, so there's an interesting detail. We know that this man is coming back. We know he's going to have even greater authority then than he has now. So think about that with Jesus uh, here first as lamb, coming back again as lion. He will receive a kingdom from his father, but he is set to return. Got it? Now, back to Matthew. He called his own servants... And delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability. And straightway took his journey. So in Matthew, there's a five, a two, and a one. In Luke, they all get the same. It's interesting. In the Luke version, there's ten servants and ten pounds. And that makes for easy math. Everybody gets one. Now, why the difference? I'm grateful for both because I think they teach different lessons. On the one hand, there's this beautiful equality on the Lord's part. This is like the penny appointed, and everyone gets the same penny, even though they worked at different, different times, different lanes. And in some things, God gives equal gifts across the board. His love, for example. 
is a pound that everyone receives to perfection. Then again, there are other talents that we receive in differing amounts. And you might be, have a talent in abundance in one area, and someone else has greater abundance in a different area. And there's probably some of us that at certain times wonder, I think I'm the one talent receiver in every area. I don't know if I got five in any aspect of life. Well, even that, fear not, okay? You still get the pound of equal, of equal love across the board. And to be honest, the way he phrases it in Matthew, that they got different amounts because of their several ability, think about different potential, but also think about the underlying potential that we all have as children of God, children of the covenant, and disciples of Jesus Christ. I have a feeling that the person who got five talents today probably only got one talent a few parables ago. But he did something good with the one, and he grew from grace to grace and was given two talents instead the second time. And then he worked and grew into it and received grace for grace and then progressed from grace to grace, and now he's at the five grace level, five talents. If you remember the parable of the sower with the good ground and it brought forth some 30-fold and some 60-fold and some 100-fold. Well, that's good growth. And I imagine if we'll just do well with whatever we have, then we will progress grace to grace, as this servant most likely did. Now, don't forget where we are in the story. The nobleman has left. He's out of town. He's going to come back someday, and he's going to be a, have a kingdom that he's coming with. But notice one detail that Luke gives us in the parable of the pounds. This is chapter 19, verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, that's an interesting thing. And since we know that nobleman typically represents Christ, these people don't have any good reason for hating him. They, but they convinced themselves they don't want him. They certainly don't want him coming back with greater authority than he already had. We don't want him ruling over us. We don't want his kingdom. Just leave the whole thing alone. So now we're kind of back to this idea of the wicked husbandman, okay? Are we going to kill and stone his servants? Are we going to kill the son when he returns? How will we respond when the, wise, or when, the, when the master comes back to us? This, by the way, would add another wrinkle for disciples as they're pondering this. Uh, do I follow Jesus? Do I trust he'll return? Or have I chosen the wrong master? Uh, is he going to delay his coming and never return? Uh, do I want him to rule over me? Or, I'd, or would I rather just do my own thing? It actually adds a, a sociological aspect because it's like, well, everybody else seems to hate him. Why should I love him? Should I keep serving in his absence? Because on, on the one hand, maybe he never returns. And in which case, why was I doing all this extra work for him? On the other hand, maybe he does return. And yeah, he's, he's got the kingdom now. But if he's rejected by everyone else then have I backed the wrong candidate? <laughs> have I put my money on the wrong horse? Am I, am I going to have any reward to show for all of this? I don't know. Well, each of these servants is going to have to decide how they respond to all of this. And back to Matthew, chapter 25, verse 16, we'll see what the servants did in the meantime. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. That's a pretty good rate of return. Doubled the investment. 
Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. So similar outcome. In fact, the exact same rate of return. He just had less to begin with and so less to end with. But again, the Lord's not going to care. He just sees how they work with it and they both did beautifully well. Meanwhile, the third person, but he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. How's that for hiding your light under a bushel? Not only have you lost a potential increase, but if inflation in the ancient world is anything like inflation in our own, then that, that talent is worth less than it was before. Things are more expensive now. And yeah, you preserved the one talent I gave you, but you've done me no favors in behaving that way. Reminds me of what Nephi warned us about and other prophets as well, that if we think what we have is enough, then it will be taken from us what we have. Uh, there's no static amount. Uh, it either grows with interest or it shrinks because of inflation. Elder Irene once said that whatever uh, amount of spiritual strength we had at one point, it will no longer be sufficient in the future. Why? Because we're up against bigger odds. I call it the parable of the treadmill, that if, if you increase the speed of the treadmill, the opposition that you're against, if, you, if it increases speed and you don't, then it spits you off the back. Whatever you thought was enough in the past, it will not be enough in the future. So we need to be doing something with the talents and time that God has allotted us. Now in verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh. And the time may have been longer than any of them expected. But once he comes home, what's he do? He reckoneth with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. Now his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I mean, you may think you're the best of these three. I've got other servants elsewhere. The five is, is still very small compared to what I ultimately want to give you. But since you've been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now notice it wasn't enter into the rest of thy Lord. We're not retiring yet. You still got grace to grow by grace and you still got work to do, but you will find joy in that service. So come and enter into the joy of thy Lord. Verse 22, he also that had received two talents came, and we see the same outcome. He said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, this will sound familiar, by the way, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Exact same praise. The amount of increase was not as important as the percentage of increase. And where much was given, much was required. But where less was given, less was required as far as the ultimate outcome. You did, oh, you with your widow's might did an incredible act. And that will be sufficient for the reward that I give you. But then we turn to servant number three. And in verse 24, then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid 
and went and hid thy talent in the earth. But at least I still have it. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. It's so interesting when the man says, I know who thou art. I know what you're like. Hmm, at least he thought he did. He had a certain perception of his master. And because of that certain perception, it resulted in a certain emotion. And that emotion resulted in a certain action. My perception of God is that he's mean, demanding. So my emotion about God is fear. And so the action that results is I'm just going to kind of lock myself up and not put myself out there and not risk anything. I just don't want to lose what he's... I don't want him to get mad at me. Man, you, you don't know the Lord. I mean, on the one hand, if that was really what it was like, why didn't you act better than what you did? If he's demanding things and he wants to reap where he hasn't sown, then you're the one that's supposed to provide the, the increase. There's a lot of illogic on this servant's part. If you thought that's what he was like, you should have behaved differently. But again, to me, it is interesting. What, is, what do we really know God to be? And if our perception is accurate, what will the resulting emotion be? And then what will the resulting action be? Interesting as we wrestle with that of how well do we know the Lord and how are we coming to know him as we study his word? On the one hand, he, he is a demanding Lord. He, where much is given, much is required. It's true. And we, we can't underestimate justice and overestimate mercy and vice versa and everything else. But be, just be aware of the links between perception, emotion, and action. I think that's interesting and important. But then the Lord responds in verse 26. His Lord answered and said unto him, Ah, thou wicked and slothful servant! How's that compared to good and faithful? Yeah, I'd take that over wicked and slothful any day. He says, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury, or interest that is. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Which is interesting, because to be honest, he could have given that talent to that man from the start. But like we said before, if the five-talent man started as a one-talent man, then what's he hope, what's the, the master trying to do for this one-talent servant? Help you grow up in God. If I was only after the increase of the money, I would have given it to the, my five guy to start. And it would have gone from six to twelve. Right now I'm only at eleven. I lost on this. But what I was trying to do was not lose on you. I wanted you to invest in something because I was invested in you. And I gave you that talent to give you an opportunity to do something with it. Do we see that in the callings we receive and the opportunities that we're given and the talents we were born with and allowed to develop? It's so interesting to think how that that's God's investment in us. And when you invest in an employee, that employee can then really build the company, if you want to follow workforce analogies. In the kingdom of God, instead of giving the same servants, the same callings, or all the callings, I should say, and you bump from 
Sunday school president to elders quorum president, or you go from uh, release study president to uh, to primary president, and it's well, these are the people that have proven themselves. Well, what about the people that haven't had the chance? Give them an opportunity. Invest in them. Give them a talent, and then help them learn to develop it. Before you know it, they'll be giving going from two to four, and from five to ten, and pretty soon, all that the father hath can safely be entrusted to them. It's amazing the kind of gamble God takes on us. We just have to prove that we were worthy of the risk by being good and faithful servants instead of wicked and slothful ones. Now in verse 29, the Lord gives the moral to the story. And we've been hinting at this all along. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. So, end of the story for this man, cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. Sounds a lot like that man without the wedding garment on. I gave you the opportunity. I, I, I pulled it out, out of my own wardrobe. Here's the garment. Will you wear it? Ah, no, I'm not interested. Here's the talent. Will you develop it? No, nah, I'm just afraid of losing it. You either increase or you decrease. That's what he's getting at here. And this servant, sadly, decreased. We either speed up or slow down. He slowed down. We either grow or we shrink. And he shrunk. And maybe it was because of his fear of losing something. His, he didn't have the courage to assume a certain amount of risk. By the way, in, the Luke's, version, in Luke's version of all of this, the parable of the pounds, the first servant went from one pound to ten. Now, how's that for a rate of return? <laughs> Not just doubled, but ten times as much. And as a reward, he's given ten cities to oversee. That's quite the jump in responsibility as well. The second servant went from one pound to five. Incredibly impressive. So now we're getting differences in degree of increase. But the Lord's totally okay with that. You're increasing. Fantastic. You're growing. And some might have different returns on their investment. Some might have, might have different rates of growth. As long as you're trying, as long as you're risking it and putting yourself out there and accepting callings to learn and to grow, then I'm okay. And you went from one to five, great. You have, have five cities now to oversee. And then there was the last one, uh, a servant that only, he's received the same one pound as everybody else, but what does he do with it? Just like his friend with the, with the talent. I guess he went to the same business school or, lack, or, or missed the same day of class. He wrapped it up in a napkin for safekeeping. At least nothing will happen to it then. And just like the other one, he was motivated by fear. I'm afraid of what would happen if I lost this thing. So I just wrapped it up and made sure it was going to be safe for safekeeping. And that way I could return it to you. And it's like, I wasn't giving it to you just to hold on to it. It was your chance to do something with it. Growth, not stagnation. Even if you lost some things, at least I could tell you were trying. It was just a bad cycle uh, in the, on, the, on the stock market. You understand what he's getting at here? I'm still fascinated by this fear. And I wonder if that's one of the things that keeps us from developing our talents. We're afraid to put ourselves out there in our undeveloped state. I mean, once, once it has, I have it doubled, 
then I'll be able to show people how impressive I am. You can't double it without first putting yourself out there. The irony of hiding your light under a bushel because you're so afraid someone else is going to think less of you and blow it out. So you hide it. Well, what did the hiding just do to it? It put it out. How's that for a fascinating, self-fulfilling prophecy? And the exact thing that you were trying to avoid, you brought upon yourself. Because you didn't have the faith to try. The courage to venture. To accept a calling and give it your best shot. To think of something that you're not very good at and just work on it and be willing to endure the learning curve. It takes a while sometimes to get a return on the investment. But keep investing. Leave it in the market. Eventually that bear market will turn into a bull one and you'll be up and running. Don't forget, by the way, Luke's context through all of this. Because the parable's over, right? But remember Luke's context from the start? This parable of the pounds, and by association, the parable of the talents, is most closely directed at people who think the second coming is right around the corner. That's interesting. On the one hand, we think that it would apply to people that think the Lord's never going to come back. And it does apply to them, right? The thought of, ah, whatever, do I really... He doesn't need a return on the investment. He's never going to come back to check on it anyway. But what about those who think he's going to check right away? Because the irony there is, does that even have time to mature or to double? Do I even have time to develop that talent? Ah, probably not. So I'll just kind of sit tight and hunker down and wait. Oh, that's foolish, not wise. That's slothful, not faithful. But the irony there is sometimes people who think the second coming is right around the corner do very little to prepare because they don't think they'll have time to find any return on their investment. I've heard horror stories of people that think the second coming is so... Well, it's like those Millerites that sell the farm. I don't need that. I'm just ready for the second coming. It's like, ah, you needed the farm. You could have fed more neighbors if you'd held on to it. Sometimes people... I'll hear horror stories of people saying, why get married when the second coming is going to be right around the corner? Or why get an education when the millennium will come and either my earthly education won't matter or I'll just get a better one then? Why have children? I'll just wait for the millennium when those children will grow up without sin unto salvation. That sounds like a better parenting gig, doesn't it? No, we need to... And here's another contrary. <laughs> Act as if the Christ were coming tomorrow and at the same time, act as if the Lord weren't coming for a long, long time. You have time for your investments to grow. You have time to prepare yourself well for a lifetime of productivity. You have time to get married and have children and watch those children have their children. President Packer talked about that. And to push back against that shallow mentality of why try if the second coming is right around the corner. No. Take advantage of the time you have. It may be shorter than you think. It may be longer than you think. Live in such a way that you can handle either alternative. And with that, he then turns to the third and final parable. With this, we'll end our study this week. And it's a beautiful way to, to finish I think we know some of the verses he's about to quote, but we don't realize that it's 
in the context of a parable that is meant to teach the same principle as the ten virgins and the talents slash pounds. This is called the parable of the sheep and goats. But you only see the sheep and goats at the beginning, and then we lose sight of them after all. Verse 31 through 33, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And so you get this idea of coming in his glory. So this is the second coming, glorious time. Okay, Sitting on the throne, and before him shall be gathered all nations. He's already sent out his servants to go beat the bushes, to gather them to the wedding feast. They're all here. And what will he see? Well, remember at the day of harvest, it's this entire separation. Separation of wheat from tares, wise virgins from foolish. Or in this case, he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, that's that covenant hand, and the goats on the left, the non-covenant. Which leaves us with the choice. Which side do we want to be on? Do we want to be sheep or goat. Choice is ours. So choose you this day whom you will serve. How long halt you between two opinions? Let's pick a side and, and go there. But how do, I, how do I know? Am I becoming a good sheep of the good shepherd? Well, there's going to be some family resemblance within this flock. Or I am, am I a goat that just wants to chew up anything? Not very discerning, that type. Who will I be? Well, speaking of discerning, here's how the Lord's going to discern which is which. Verse 34. And this, this is the part where it starts to get famous for us. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And now let me tell you how you qualified. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. It's beautiful to think as, we've, as we're approaching the end of the Gospels that if you go back through the life of Christ, hasn't he done all of those things? Didn't he give meat to the hungry, multiplying loaves and fishes? Didn't he give water to the thirsty? the living water himself, to take in the stranger, every Gentile, to clothe the naked. He did that for us all, covering our nakedness with his coat of skins. Sick, he did more than visit. He healed. And in prison, he didn't just come. He delivered you, brought you out. Jesus did all of those things for us. And in some ways, what he's asking is that we do the same for him. But for him, when would I even have that opportunity? Well, that's the beauty of this part of the parable. You see, verse 37, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, but Lord, when? When saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? I never saw you in any of those service projects. What, what are you talking about? This, by the way, would also tell us just how righteous these righteous sheep are. 
that they weren't doing it to be seen of man. They weren't doing it like, well, I'm sure Jesus is around here somewhere. And uh, I do all this service and he's going to know. He's going to notice. I'm doing this to get on his good side. No, as far as they were concerned, he was nowhere present, just unaware. I just saw someone in need. That's just, that's the least I could do for the least of these. Again, I imagine Jesus being so impressed with all of that, not doing anything to be seen of man, not even doing it to be seen of God. Interesting. Then though, verse 40, the Lord clarifies, and the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That is such a magnificent verse. Notice the details. It's unto one. Even if it's only one. It's least. The last person anyone would consider worthy of help. But how does the Lord refer to them? My brethren. They're mine, beautiful possessive pronoun. They're brothers and sisters. They're people I care about and have a relationship with. And the fact that you cared about them too. Any friend of, <laughs> of them is a friend of mine. Anyone who cares for the least, cares for the greatest of all, who is Jesus. It's amazing to take this and connect it to Mosiah 2, 17, right? When you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. Who taught us that? King Benjamin did. Wasn't he the same one who taught us about an unprofitable servant? We're starting to tie these parables together. Who will we be? Who do we see them as? If you get a chance to reread the, the verses, all the verses, all seven verses, of a poor wayfaring man of grief, that hymn goes along with this parable so perfectly. Because in every instance, we think we're doing something for this poor wayfaring man of grief. And yet, by the end of the song, we realize we were doing it for the Lord. Even taking his place in prison, we did it for him in token of all that he did for us. But we also learn in that hymn that we come away better off every single time. And what we sacrificed for his sake comes back to bless us. How's that, a return? How's that for a return on the investment? Even though that's not why we were doing it. We just lost ourselves. And in the process, we found ourselves a far better version. That's what happens when we, when we give all we can to the least of these Christ's brethren. But if that's the positive, the negative also exists. We met the sheep, now we got to meet the goats. Verse 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, the non-covenant side, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And as they're probably, wait, 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 what did we do wrong? Was I that evil? In this case, it's not that you were so evil, it's that you weren't very good. This is not sins of commission I'm condemning you for. These are sins of omission that have damned you because it, there's no chance to move forward. Notice how he describes it. I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, ye took me not in. Naked, ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, ye visited me not. And I'm sure you had all kinds of reasons to justify your inaction. This is the priest and the Levite who passed by the wounded man on the other side of the road. This is the Pharisee who did nothing for Jesus other than feed him in his home when that so-called or supposedly wicked woman did so much above and beyond. You, like I said, it's interesting how, how the Lord feels about sins of omission. I didn't do anything wrong. I know. But you didn't do anything right. And as we protest and wonder, no, 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 if I knew it was you, I would have done those things. Uh, here I am, right on your, hand, on your left hand. I want to be as close as possible. But yeah, close to me, you won't, we're only keeping the first great commandment. You didn't care about the second. The, the second is like unto the first. So verse 44, Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, or athirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? I totally would have come to your rescue if I'd known you were the one asking. And again, they get the same res response. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Life eternal. Which isn't just the quantity of life. It's the quality of life. It's the life that God himself lives. And what's that life like? Losing himself in service to others. Not only avoiding every sin of commission, but overcoming every sin of omission. Seeing the least of these as his own brothers and sisters and treating them accordingly. Not in hopes of some reward, earthly or otherwise. Just out of love. Are we becoming true disciples? Are we becoming sheep as good as our good shepherd? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ponder as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I love the context of all of this. The best way to prepare is more than just repent. It's to serve. It's to lift. It's to love. I'm grateful for all that Jesus has done to try to get us up to speed for the second coming. I'm most grateful for the fact that there will be a second coming at all, that he will return. And that's a day that I long for. I hope he knows that it's a day that I'm trying to live for. I hope that I and you and all of us collectively are doing our part to gather as a body so the eagles can come soaring in. I testify of Christ's desire to be with us. I look forward to the wedding. And the only reason it hasn't happened yet, well, I can't say that. He might, he might have his reasons of his own, is to give us more time to be more fully prepared. He wants everyone to make it to the wedding feast. I testify of that. And I testify of his glorious love for each of us. To the point that I can say of the second coming, that which Alma said of the first, would to God that it might be in my day. But be it sooner or later, in it I shall rejoice.